0: Gentlemen, hello there. Hey, good time to have a conversation. How are you feeling about your government right now, Paul?
1: Um, not not <laughs> not the greatest, uh, you know, maybe par for the course. And it's a gentle person, I guess. I'm non binary myself, so oh, I'm not sorry. quite a gentleman, yeah, but yeah, uh, I'll try to be gentle. Gentle person, yeah, thank
0: yeah.
2: you. Gentle human,
0: yeah, my mistake. Um, so I, I should give you the context of what just happened. We just got literally, I think, was it within an hour and a half, two hours, maybe? Yeah, very like recently, that. a decision on an appeal. And it went against us. Yeah. And to the Court of Appeals defense, it very often is the case that these sorts of appeals are denied because they're going to review them later. But I know, John, you in particular were were counting on this and felt like our grounds for appeal were pretty strong because they're basically trying to gag us in this trial.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's not even just a matter of gagging, it's gagging you from explaining how what you did well. What we did, I was part of this case yeah. too, is not actually the crimes that they're alleging, you know. And I was thinking about this originally. Y- you know, I, I felt uh, when, when I was contemplating the, the plea deal. You know, my uncle had been like, "You're John. You're you know, you're charging a machine gun turret. I I love the cause. I love your ad machine gun turret. Turret. You're charging yeah, he, a machine gun turret. I know. Lawyer, I a lot of lawyers love these mili- you know, gross <laughs> like violent military analogies, but they're kind of act. You know, they yeah. The apt and um, but over the course of just lo- of, of working on the case, working on the motions, uh, I've really realized that what we did is not actually theft and burglary. It's it? just, it's yeah. not. And we have the evidence to show that it's not. And it, 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 what a just prosecutor would do, what a, a good version of Sean Reyes and Janice McCannis would do, is realize like this is a mistake on our mm-hmm. part, because like they're under a constitutional Duty to pursue justice and not convictions, and instead, they're, what they're doing is kneecapping us from even ta- from from showing the court how this is not actually the crimes that that are being committed. So it's it's like it's it goes beyond just carrying water for Smithfield and in, into in, just this extreme level of of constitutional violation. And I, I really I I thought that we made the case well. Yeah, in we did in, the, in the, the, the petition, and I thought that there was going to be somebody good on the Court of Appeals who would recognize this and say, we need to intervene because what the state and what the trial and the trial judge allowing the state to do is just is not okay anywhere in the world. This, is, this would be wrong anywhere. Yeah. And they didn't do it. And that's really disappointing. Yeah,
0: I feel I feel that obviously as a defendant myself. And for the record, John, I think you mentioned this, you were actually co-defendant a long time ago. You referenced the fact that you yeah. took a plea deal, which I think was in your interest at the time and probably still was the right call for you, especially yeah. since you've got a kid on the way. Yeah, I actually totally forgot to do something that my team told me I should do, so I'm gonna have to back things up. It's all right; we'll just make this part of the podcast. But we're trying something new, and I'm gonna do an intro (laughs) at the beginning of the actual conversation instead of doing like a separate intro because it sounds too weird to have like an intro then the conversation. So, by way of introduction, the two people I have on the podcast today are two people I just have immense respect for and have sacrificed an enormous amount for the animals, and we'll go into your stories and not just for the animals, just for making the world a better place. But Paul Picklesheimer is one of the lead investigators on the DXC Open Rescue Network. He has uh, been with me on some of the most important investigations in DXC history. We exposed cage-free egg farms at Costco together. We were inside of um, some of Costco suppliers, including this big farm that we're talking about in Southern Utah. Um, and you've subsequently become a you know, design expert in, in the animal rights movement. I really think your design work is among the best in the animal rights movement. And also a lead organizer, a core organizer in the DXC Open Rescue Network. Not just the Open Rescue Network, in the DXC Network after I stepped back. The other person I have in the podcast is someone who's been on before. Um, and John is not actually my counsel of record in this case, but he's on the DXC legal team. He's an attorney. Right. He's an activist. And um, his family has a very interesting history, because his dad actually prosecuted animal rights activists as the attorney general of Oregon True. many, many years ago. So. The fact that John is speaking this negatively about the government, and in many ways biographically, is surprising because yeah. your family and, and was very much a part of the government, and, and frankly your father was the lead prosecutor for the entire state of Oregon. Right. And yet here you are today, not just defending people being prosecuted by the government, but in two separate cases, actually three separate cases now, right? at yeah. least three major felony cases you've been prosecuting yourself. So that's the right. introduction. Really excited to have both of you on, and uh, especially in this moment, because we need to bring so much attention to this case and the broader problem of governments across the world, not just in the United States. You look at what's happening in Russia. You look at what's happening in China. Powerful institutions covering things up to prevent the public from seeing the truth that may change them. So that's kind of where we are today. Yeah. Is that good? In intro? That's great. Did yeah. I miss thanks. anything, guys? No, no, no. I use
1: uh, the they them pronouns. So it's it's a thing to get used to. But right, if you good. if you don't get used to it soon, that's totally fine too. I'll Did under, I say he? And yeah, it's all good. Sorry, yeah. I should have said to- they them. Yeah. Yeah. Cool though. But yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the intro. Thanks for everything that you do too. And it's an honor to be here. You've had some really awesome guests. Talked about some really important topics on this show. So happy yeah. to be a part of it now.
0: Yeah, I am too. So I thought I'd start. I mean, I, I want to get into the specifics of what's been unfolding in Utah and Wisconsin because you know, there's not only just incredible animal cruelty happening there and the lack of transparency, but there's human trafficking, there's environmental devastation, there's diseases spreading in Beaver County, uh, and more fundamentally, it's just, there's something deeply problematic about an institution that large and powerful using their power just to harm other living beings, human and non-human. Mm-hmm. But I think to get to that, that story first, I kind of want to ask you, Paul, about how this all started for you. Because um, I actually don't recall. <laughs> yeah, you, I know, maybe I know might some refresh of the your big picture Details. Yeah, but you are a mm. roofer huh? from the state of West Virginia. Yeah, surrounded by farms,
1: I think? Um, not so much. Not I so mean, much. the okay. thing with West Virginia, I mean, if you look at that, uh, counter glow, you had Kesia on one time, she made that Dude. project. If you look at West Virginia from a satellite map, you'll see it's the greenest st- state in the United States because it's so hilly that it's just really kind of underdeveloped. And basically because of all those hills and mountains and everything, it's also one of the states with the fewest number of farms per se, animal farms, factory farms. Because mm. it's all yeah. coal mines. Um, I mean, that's, that's where in the south, that's a lot of it. Uh, you know, where I'm from, I'm from the northernmost tip, so I'm 45 Five minutes northwest of Pittsburgh, growing up, and okay. not too far from Cleveland either. So uh, that's a steel town area in mm-hmm. general, historically anyway. A lot of that, you know, folded over the years. Okay. Since so the I got 70s. that absolutely yeah. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get did the right, get st- right that
0: you were you were a roofer. Yeah, all in my, all my life.
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, my parents started a roofing business when I was a little baby, and uh, you know, I went to school. You know, got a bachelor's in marketing, business administration, and, and couldn't really put it to use too well. The entry level jobs weren't great, so I just went into the family business that I'd been doing in the summers anyway. And uh, yeah, did that for decades. And, and that's, that's where I started to see animals. Because I guess I shouldn't say they're not farms. They're definitely farms. Uh, we yeah. specialized in slate repair along with uh, torch down flat roofs. But the slate repair... Slate repair?
0: What the heck? Slate
1: repair. So around here, you don't see a lot of just typical slate roofs. But in that tri-state area where I'm from, uh, like a lot of the roofs that aren't shingles or something are what's just called slate. And it's these okay. gray t- 12 by 24 usually tiles that are just flat. And, uh, you know, they're, they're great. They last 150 years usually. Okay. Um, so the part of a roof. Yeah, part of a roof. And um but yeah, so those have sort of phased out over the years, but they're still in a lot of barns. Hmm. So we would end up on not factory farms, but like these smaller farms, the ones that you see at the farmers market or places like that. And that was eye-opening um because, you know, I'm, I, I grew up like like every everybody I knew in West Virginia certainly eating a lot of animals, just the typical, you know, American diet whatever, and always hunting. Fancy, um Hunting in quotations. I definitely um, fished with my father a lot. Okay. Um, the only time we ever went hunting, it was basically my dad and I going out and sitting in the woods, eating candy bars, you know, it. like he's got, he's got like a pistol. It was sort of just like a bonding thing. I, I, I think he didn't want to have to shoot anybody or anything, but certainly all my friends, it's like a really popular thing there. But my dad and I, we would go fishing a lot. And, you know, I say fishing casually, you know, like ideally it's. So what know. is a
0: popular thing? Your family just didn't participate.
1: Um, yeah. Hunting. Yeah. Yeah. For okay. the most part, that's, that's that the case. That
0: sounds so weird he brought a pistol to hunt and you had candy bars? <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I think he just wanted to go bond. You know, okay. we just sat, we sat in the woods, freezing our butts off and, uh, and being quiet and, yeah. you know, so yeah, we preferred fishing and uh, we would always, you know, once a year go rent a pontoon boat and, yeah. uh, in Ohio and just spend the day out there. And, uh, but, but yeah, uh, working on these farms, you know, you're doing like repairs on the roofs, you start seeing things and you're like, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty amazing how the conditions these animals are in, even on these small farms, you know,
3: yeah. um,
1: maybe one out of 10 would look like that farm you see on a commercial where it's like, Oh, the nice green area and mm-hmm. everything's kind of clean. Nine out of 10 were pretty rough. And as mm-hmm. somebody who's been on probably more factory farms than most farmers in California have, sure. uh, I'll tell you like these small farms were, were honestly very often worse than what yeah. we see in the factory really? situations. Yeah. Because they're, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're not, no staff, not class, operationalized, yeah. whatever. It's like all these different birds, different species into one cage Mm -hmm. you go behind the barn there's a massive pile of dead goats there or something like that and uh yeah eventually you know spent a day or a couple days doing a slit repair in this barn in Ohio and uh there were cows there it was like not just a dairy but it was had a small dairy aspect and they had the babies sort of in these separate pens and I was just kind of on my lunch break hanging out with this cute little baby cow and uh the, uh, the the moms were like far away. You could tell there was like were a, these hutches. These were uh, pens. Hutches
0: are like these tiny little yeah, the little doghouse looking they're things. Like a doghouse for a cow. They can't even often turn around.
1: Yeah, th- this place um, was frankly one of the one of those like nine, uh, one out of ten kind of places, honestly. Really? And um, yeah, there was like so they had a hutch, but they also had this little maybe six by six fenced in area. Um, and so I was just eating my lunch, hanging out with that baby. And uh, the owner of the building came. Can
0: I just make an observation? You said it was the one out of 10 that are good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a six by six space. Exactly. For a 200 pound animal. Exactly. Yeah. Because a calf, I mean, for those of you who are thinking, oh, a little baby cow, Mm -hmm. five pounds. No, no, no. Yeah. Baby cows, dairy cows. This is probably a Holstein, like a dairy cow. Yeah, it was a Holstein. So they're born at like 150 to 200 pounds and they grow really fast. Yeah. So imagine a 200 pound person in a six by six box. That's like a shower, you know, kind of a medium-sized shower probably not a huge shower but a medium-sized shower Mm -hmm. their entire life and this is the 10% you're saying are good
1: yeah yeah that's that (laughs) that tells you something
0: because it's so dreadful and evil but
1: no they really wanted to frolic you could tell they would take a a one pounce or two but then they couldn't move around too much more and yeah they they couldn't do anything and and, but the really sad (sighs) thing is they were just sort of waiting to be taken away because I asked the owner I'm like hey what's what's the deal you know like do they you know do you why why are they away from their mom right now basically Mm -hmm. and he's like oh we don't keep the babies he's like yeah a guy comes once or twice and uh, you know gives us like a a buck fifty to two hundred dollars for them and then they end up being he said like cheap meat is what he referred to it Mm -hmm. as so it could go to who knows where and I was like, oh, my gosh, like at that point, I was already somebody who had for health reasons, you know, sort of adopted trying to eat plant based diet, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and always fancied myself like an animal lover type of person. Like if somebody had a dog tied up on a short leash, we we talk to them, make like the customer and be like, hey, like, you know, that's not cool. And she like try to help them out more. And, and then, you know, you start seeing it happen to these chickens, pigs, cows, goats, everybody else. You see them treated so poorly. And at that moment, I'm just looking there at this baby. They're so sweet. They would just love to just probably cuddle, play, do whatever, grow up, have a life, be with their mom. And for $150, bucks, they are going to go get, you know, shipped yeah, off sure. and, and taken away from their mom. And, you know, animals moms in general, you know, regardless of species, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times they, they bond for sure. Yeah. yeah. And you'll hear a lot of farmers talk about like, yeah, the, the coming weeks and sometimes months after the babies get taken away that the moms are mourning and, yeah. and, and you can notice that. So
0: there's just yeah, an article yeah. in the New York times about this. Did you all see that? No, no, I didn't. So there was a great piece about animals grieving. It was specifically focused on elephants, but they talked about all the animals that grieve and cows were actually one of the species they mentioned Wow. Yeah. that will grieve extensively. And it's, it's pretty awful. Yeah. To hear a mother. I mean, just a mother of any species because the maternal bond is, and mammals, such a powerful bond because the babies depend on the moms. The moms need, they've evolved to have this intense affinity, attachment to their child. And when that's broken, it's terrible. It's like so awful to be around.
1: Yeah. And imagine when they're just, I mean, the mom was a hundred yards away. And so they they know they're there and they just can't get to each other. And at that point, I was just like, you know, I... I'm I'm ready for something different. Like I I I loved roofing, loved working with my family, my father. um, But I honestly wanted to start trying to say like find ways to just help people see what I was seeing on these small farms. And um, yeah, just kind of. You know, eventually got me down the road to making my way out west a little bit. Was in Chicago for a few years. Uh, heard about direct action everywhere. I got involved with that. And then as soon as I started hearing y'all, as I would refer to you when when I was in Chicago, talking about open rescue and investigation, I thought, like, yeah, this is, uh, like, no one's doing this. Like, people have different perspectives on animals and, like, whether they should be used for food or whatnot. But I feel like we share, for the most part, a really common perspective that people should know what's going on. So people see whatever Smithfield or Tyson or these different companies tell them, you know, and they see the ads, they see their website, their YouTube, whatever, and then we go to these places, point the camera around, and we don't see what they're showing people. Yeah. So I don't, you know, it's. Have you uh, done
0: any activism before that? What, what was your first um, activism? Was it direct action everywhere? I mean, I would,
1: you know, volunteer sometimes at the local animal shelter, okay. and um, yeah, I doubt I did much more before that. Um, yeah, there was. By some... the way,
0: can I just say one of the things I love about you? <laughs> What's that? I, I don't really ever told you this. <laughs> What's up? When you were describing just your interactions with animals and how you loved animals, and even when you're describing seeing this cow, uh-huh. that sound you make. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's my, something really, my universal really squeaky beautiful noise. About that when I see interactive animals, just like there's, cause it's very gentle and peaceful and it's like, I don't know where you got that, but it's, I don't know it's even calming for me. I almost yeah. feel like I'm going to trot over to Paul. <laughs> it's like.
1: I remember it's, one time you said it was sort time. of a pain. You're like, I'm trying to edit this video, but yeah, like well that- <laughs> I hear Paul squeaking in the background. <laughs> That's yeah. Right. That's yeah. Different. Yeah. But thank you. That's a, I appreciate that compliment. <laughs> so yeah. if you did
0: that throughout the podcast, I'd probably <laughs> okay. meant to tell you to stop. All right. But, but observing it in an interaction between you and a non-human animal is, mm-hmm. is actually pretty powerful. Yeah.
1: I try to communicate to them somehow, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Because there's something about just the, the gentleness of our expressions and, and their expressions backed up. Mm-hmm. And I, I blogged about this recently, but j- there's a lot of power in gentleness yeah. that people don't recognize. Um, yeah. But anyways, so you had volunteered at some animal shelters, but you hadn't done... Yeah, I hadn't done any kind of or organized
1: like activism. No, that wouldn't be until... For any cause, not
0: just for animal rights. Yeah,
1: I mean, nothing that I can think of, honestly, unless I'm forgetting some minor thing. But no, in West Virginia, like we, there was a big uh, issue back in the day. Uh, this company called WTI, West Te- uh, Waste Technology Industries, tried to open a um, nuclear waste incinerator... Wow. in the backyard of a middle school in a, in a poor neighborhood in Ohio, Seriously? right across the river. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I didn't go to any of the protests. It was something I followed, but I watched people do stuff and, and watched how it was playing out. And, and it was a real local grassroots grassroots group of people. Um, my friend, Terry Swearingen, she was the person who sort of led it. Um, and it was a, it was a huge fight and, hmm. and the activists lost that one, mm-hmm. but as of, I guess, a few years ago, last time I checked, no more of those kind of toxic waste incinerators had opened in the U.S., wow. um, which... So maybe know, they what lost it, forward. What's that? Maybe they lost yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe those incinerators are now someplace else in the world where people can't That's protest true, as effectively. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But but yeah, that, that left an imprint on me. That was, that was cool to see. I mean, I know that she sacrificed things. Uh, she, she was eventually, like, sort of, you know, awarded for her, you know, work. People recognized how hard she fought and everything, so that was really cool, but... Um, yeah, that was probably my my first, you know, exposure to activism. But uh, until I, you know, I moved to Chicago and just trying to get plugged in. So I'd uh, look up like Mercy for Animals online. They'd have, you know, oh, we're having like a, you know, we're supporting the pride parade, come out and leaflet or, you know, we're doing a thing or two. So I did that for a little bit. And then, yeah, eventually my partner at the time. I uh, said like, hey, there's this group direct action everywhere. They just started. I'm like, what do they do? And she said like, oh, they go into like Chipotle this time, and they're gonna just yell about how, how it's like uh, <laughs> the, the, the the humane. Hell. I was like, yeah, I that's that, that sounds terrible. Theory. I'm like, am <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Like, let me know how <laughs> it goes. Yeah, we know yeah. How it is. yeah, yeah. And she went and she said, like, yeah, that was pretty cool actually. And um, huh. I'm like, all right, I'll try the next one. And I went, and I was like, yeah, this does not feel like effective activism to me, huh. honestly. What and what was your
0: uh, first demonstration?
1: Uh going into Chipotle and yelling and that was, was Um yeah, I think yeah, Glenn was there at the Klein time for sure. Good. Yeah, there was like maybe five of us. Uh, um Klein we had some, such a good guy. Yeah, yeah, we, we were lucky. Speaker. He was a great speaker, he mm-hmm. was really welcoming to everybody who showed up and you know, yeah. like tried to help people and and yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. what I said was like, you know what, I don't I don't think anybody in this restaurant is gonna take away from like this message too much that Sure. They should change their diets or something. And yeah, Glenn's like, that's not really what we're going for. You yeah. know, um, we're trying to sort of just help people learn to become activists. And I will admit, like, it did feel good to go into this place where you know, like, what's happening behind the counter and um, in, in the farms, where it all came from, where their bodies came from. Uh, it's just not right, but it felt good to go in there and just like be honest about it, you know. Because yeah, other times absolutely. before that, like I always felt like this stuff wasn't right, but I would go and I'd keep my mouth shut and act like it was normal. Yeah. And yeah, the first time I'm like, yeah, this is like I could, you know, it makes it harder to to sit quietly, um, you yeah. know, and let that stuff happen once you've sort of spoke up about it a bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Glenn is a great example of a, just an early leader in mm-hmm. the Direct Action Ever network and what we were trying to achieve with people, which wasn't just support and activism, it was understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted people to understand a the theory of change and the strategy, because that's really crucial to building power in a social movement. Marshall Gantz, the sociologist at Harvard, who was an organizer for Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement has written a lot about this. But powerful movements create powerful people, people who have a deep understanding of the political, the social, the cultural environment they're in and can navigate their strategy effectively because they have an understanding of the, the, the reasons and the evidence and the strategies and the theories behind what they're doing. And I think the thing that Glenn understood that most people don't understand about protest is protest usually isn't about changing the people out the protest. It's mm-hmm. usually not even necessarily about changing the institution you're protesting. It's mostly about mobilizing the activists. Yeah. And there have been a number of studies of this. I mean, The best one is one I've cited a number of times, and it's in our workshop, How to Change the World in One Generation. There's a study done of the Tea Party of all organizations, where mm-hmm. they did some interesting statistical work to tease out basically how powerful the Tea Party was. And they found that for every, essentially every person who came to Tea Party protest, about 10 voters voted for Republican Party candidates downstream, but not because they directly influenced the public or the media, but because they fired people up within the protest and they went home and started talking to their friends and family in a more effective way. It's mm-hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. So what eventually convinced you if you thought this is stupid and effective? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> why the hell are you at this table, Paul? Yeah,
1: well, uh, you did a podcast with um, Chicago Vegan. Uh, it was like the meetup group that yeah, uh, that yeah. David ran, and That's um, right. Back and in the it day. was like uh-huh. you know titled "What if everything we think we know about social change is wrong?" Yeah, was very you very and Brian Burns. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, All right, let's take this out. And so then I, then I started. I'm like, okay, I see. They're really not trying to convince people in a restaurant to change their diet. They're right. trying to help people identify as activists and buy into the idea that you know collectively. We can build and grow, support each other to the point that we can eventually exert some sort of, you know, resistance uh, to the systems that exist. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm down for that. Uh, and you, you know.
0: felt that. You said yourself, even though you yeah. thought the Chipotle protest was kind of dominant and effective, you thought. Yeah. But it is good to speak the truth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, that that I, feels it, good.
1: Yeah. It, it worked on me, quote, unquote. Like, yeah. I, it, it um, worked. I felt, I felt good about it. And I thought, you know what? These are like the people... Also, too, it was sort of attractive that, um, the folks were not just looking at like the animal issue per se, like yeah. uh, the folks were, you know, framing it as a part of all these different social oppressions, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important. I mean, I think it's also important for people to focus on certain issues. Like you're going to be probably more effective when you, when mm-hmm. you can hone in on things and have objectives related to that specific, you know, form of oppression. But I, I was really happy that it was a group that like really framed it as like, Hey, there's oppression in so many ways. Uh, they're all different in their own ways, but there's so many commonalities when it comes to the oppressors themselves, the systems that uphold things uh and, and and the people, um, you know, human or otherwise who who experience the oppressions in different yeah, ways. Like sure. there's uh, you know the interactions and intersections like are really there and yeah. Yeah, I, I like that framing and um yeah it's it's been it's been a f- it's been an interesting you know time since then I'm like learning all the time, and um, like it's weird people will be because I've been around for a while, so newer activists will look up to me as if I'm you know I'm like, hey, listen, y'all, like I'm learning too, you know mm-hmm. like there's so many things I don't know, I'm trying my best, we're all just trying our best, but uh, yeah i think I think it takes sometimes a lifetime to really really you know put yourself in a position where you've really learned a lot and hopefully helped change some things, yeah so. it really
0: does, and I'd say even more of a lifetime One of the yeah, because I think we need to respect our elders more yeah and and especially our elders who are embedded in communities is because they not only have their knowledge from their lifetime of experience, but they have knowledge that's been passed down from generations before. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the civil rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, I mean, when I had Evan Wilson on the podcast, he spent his entire life fighting for gay rights. He's a gay man himself. And he's seen incredible progress. And part of the reason he saw that progress is because there are a lot of senior citizens. And I don't mean senior citizens in in terms of age, I just mean in terms of experience and in terms of the accumulated wisdom that he had from generations of LGBTQ folks who had fought quietly Mm and in in terror because for so long it was so hard. And what Evan did and, you know, the victory they had with Obergefell, namely the Supreme Court holding that everyone has the constitutional right to marry, regardless of the sex or gender of the person you're marrying, was a result of generations of work, not just one person. And generations of knowledge that really needs to be Accumulated and passed down in clear and, and mm-hmm. concise and, and, and accurate ways to the next generation. So, and that's one of the reasons podcasts like this are good. Yeah. They create a record. John, I want to ask you, because I actually hmm. forget. How did you feel about So, um, first, tell, tell everyone on the podcast. I think you've said this a little bit about this before. Hmm. Tell people about how you got involved in activism, because Paul is surprising in some ways. Roofer in West Virginia, now, you know, Berkeley animal rights activists with, I'd say, a group that's, you know, on the cutting edge, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably identified as very progressive for a variety of reasons, so not what you'd expect a roofer in West Virginia to do. Your story is surprising, too, mm-hmm. um, not only because your family was, I wouldn't say a conservative family necessarily, although your, your dad was a Republican.
2: He was a Republican. He was a, the, one of the last few liberal Republicans. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, or you know, like a moderate Republican. Well, I mean the Republican Party in, at least in some places, like. Well, it's funny when I when I ask my dad why are you a Republican, he'd be like, well, it's the party of Lincoln, it's the ah. the party of liberty. Uh, but there was a whole there was a breed of Republicans in in Oregon in like the the sixties and seventies, like governor, kind of exemplified by governor. Tom McCall, who were actually like very progressive, like they like the first like bottle bill, what that was Tom McCall's work, and uh, and they did some really cool environmental stuff, some really great stuff with, regarding preservation and conservation of of, uh, of the natural world. So that's sort of where he was coming from. But then uh, during the 1980s, with the, the rise of the the religious right, like the the party changed a lot and became a lot more conservative. But my dad just always kind of held on to the the ideals that originally brought him to the Republican Party.
0: Yeah. Do you know Roe versus Wade which was decided by Republican-appointed justices?
2: I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. I think it was a majority of Republican justices that ruled in favor of Roe versus Wade. It was a it, was like it could send a two decision, but it might have even been... Maybe not all of them, but I think it was either five or four of the seven. Mm, really? Republican-appointed. That's and, very interesting. And when I was talking to Doug, one of the things he was telling me was you know, the strategy the Democrats took, in particular Kennedy and then Johnson of of trying to use civil rights to build a base and power um, among people who are very concerned about civil rights and because of the geopolitical forces, because the Soviet Union was Mm -hmm. cracking down all over the world and pointing to all the hypocrisies of the US government. And in particular, these cases were black people and activists, white people, you know, were getting firebombed and murdered merely for saying, hey, I think we should treat people of different races you know, some degree of decency, and it became a huge geopolitical issue. So the Democratic Party had to leverage civil rights to basically win the wars it was fighting in Vietnam and Korea. Hmm. So it's, it's weird, but in many ways, you could argue that the Republican Party, even in the 1950s, was better on civil rights than the Democratic Party mm-hmm. until Kennedy and Johnson. But yeah. anyways, I'm, I'm more interested in, uh, not that that yeah. was an interesting, sorry. sure, that was, that was a little bit of an insult. Huh? Okay which part? <laughs> I said, I'm more interested. That was like a back. Oh. <laughs> what you said was totally uninteresting to me. Let's get on to more interesting subjects. No. Um, that's but okay. seriously, that's okay. I just, can you just tell me how you, cause I'm trying to remember how you even got involved in activism? Cause we were, yeah, uh, we were both attorneys at DLA right. Piper, which is like right. a big tech law firm in Silicon Valley. Right. And then how did you get involved in activism? Was it,
2: well, I mean, growing up, I was always sort of I was interested in animal issues. Like, I mean, you kind of get bits and pieces of of, of the, a non mainstream perspective. You know, like I remember when I was fifteen, uh, this a classmate of mine brought in a PETA brochure. I think it was a PETA brochure anyway, and it showed a cow going through the slaughter process. And mm. I, I just it was just, it was shocking and horrifying. But I was also like really surprised because I've been eating animals my whole life, and I I think that was the very first photo of the actual slaughter process and there was almost this disconnect of like not even realizing that animals are are have to be slaughtered for food mm. um which i think is actually very intentionally created by the animal exploitation industries but sure. just seeing it was so jarring i was like wow like this being Got basically de- almost decapitated, mm-hmm. and and bled horribly, so that her her body could be could be used, and it it was just it was very shocking to to see that, and I was like wow okay th- there's there's something else out there. Um, Do you remember who that was? Yeah, her name was uh, the classmate's name was Jade. I, I haven't um, kept up with her. I, I hope she's she should doing. Get back in touch with her. And I, sh- like, I hey, should you actually. Know that video? Look at me now. It, I, it absolutely it had a huge <laughs> it, it had a huge impact. Nearly sent me to prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then I, my debate coach in high school, a great guy named Chris was vegan, and I remember I heard about it and I thought it was extreme, yeah. but something about it was like okay, I get there, there's there's a reason to this. Uh, I was I was intrigued by it, and then later on, I did I got into yoga. I did a yoga teacher training program. When I was a junior in college, and a big part of the yogic philosophy is non-harm. The Sanskrit term is ahimsa, and it, at least in theory, it applies to everything around you. You know, there's there's a, there's a different word meaning like this care of oneself. Ahimsa really has to do with not harming those outside of you, those around you, and that applies to the natural environment. It applies to other human beings, and then it applies to to other animals also. And then I st- was that unusual at Stanford? Because I've spent a lot of time at Stanford. Yes. Yeah.
0: I have not seen a lot of that. Despite Extremely all the unusual. talk about, you know, Silicon Valley being yeah. just like, oh, everybody does yoga and right. there's all these hippies who are doing drugs and dancing and drum right. circles. But Palo Alto I, and Stanford feel like very Totally I'm not very no, open. I don't, I don't. I don't. Re- like there aren't even really that many vegan restaurants in the
2: area. Yeah, in, in no. Vegetarian this, restaurants. this teacher training program happened in Cabo San Lucas in oh, Baja, in so Mexico. It wasn't even in Baja, it wasn't even. I don't long think long. I ever encountered any animal rights consciousness whatsoever it's at Stanford. Same. I wow. think there, there were the only times when we had discussions about it were after the teacher training program that I did in my junior year. Yeah. Uh, my my diet changed, and other people kind of challenged me about it, huh. and then I just sort of explained it to them, and I, people were kind of they were somewhat receptive but i don't think i ever like and then i there, there was also a, a nutrition class i took uh professor chris gardner which was very good and professor gardner was a was a vegan also but there i don't think there was any animal that was not there was no animal ethics associated with it so at it didn't all Didn't come
0: up with that primatologist what's his name again i always forget his name
2: oh robert sapolsky
0: polsky he didn't talk about animal issues at all not that i like remember was pretty sympathetic because he took Me, a class with him right
2: i did it was a, it was an amazing class yeah, yeah i learned so much about human about biology and yeah and human psychology but no I don't think that we talked about because the weird thing about animal, his, right?
0: his work is that so much of it is on this is this guy who studies primates and he's he's actually done field work
2: right I believe so okay. yeah he's like out, he's, he studied the chimpanzee populations yeah, yeah, yeah. in Africa so he directly
0: I mean it's it's one of the examples of just the weird tension and even hypocrisy we have in our system because he studies all these primates in that are different species but he's probably most known for his insights into human behavior Hmm. In other words, he's basically living proof, and his, his work is proof, that the mental states of animals are similar enough to the mental states that we have, that when it comes to because he does a lot of work on stress, right? Hmm. Think that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. A lot, he wrote a lot why, of work why, why on zebras stress how, don't get ulcers was Yeah, why zebras stress. don't get ulcers and what happens to primates when you know, they're stressed out versus primates that are happy, yeah. and shows there's huge differences, like stress, not even physical violence, even just being unhappy has enormous biological consequences. Mm. It's like devastating for primates. And they found that, yes, this applies to human beings too, because of the observations he made among primates. And it's just one of these weird things. Well, yeah. if we see exactly the same phenomenon yeah. happening in the animals, right. and we see how bad it is when it happens to us, it seems like the next logical conclusion should be, hey, let's kind of avoid it in both species. You know, sure. why, why would sure. we say it's okay to put a, a primate in a cage and not a human being? Granted, we're kind of putting both humans and primates in cages in this country yeah. way too much. But... Um, I will say it's still systematic in, in the commodity status of animals, especially farm animals, is on a different level.
2: Yeah. But Yeah.
0: Okay. But you didn't answer the well, question like – Oh, oh you, sure. How did you get involved in activism? Because I yeah. actually don't recall. I just – I remember our first interaction because that was yeah. – the dinner where I said, I'm a vegan dumpster diver. (laughs) You were like, who the hell is that guy? Yeah. You were the only one who came and talked to me afterwards instead of running away. Right. Everyone else is like, this guy's a fucking weirdo. And John's like, I want to talk to him. Yeah, totally. But but let's skip that story because I think we already told it. Sure. What was your first experience of activism?
2: You know, honestly, I, I give you credit. Um, huh. I think you really brought me into activism, and it was it, it, right. I remember after that dinner, you and I became friends. We bonded because we were the only you know, the oh, two I'm people, serious. and we both actually openly talked about yeah. uh, about animal rights. Well, about veganism, I guess at the time. But there were some vegetarians though, no vegans. That? There yeah. were some
0: vegetarians at the firm, like our good old oh, true. Yeah, exactly,
2: yeah. and then. Uh, we became friends. And then I just started hearing about kind of your experiences with activism. And I saw the photos of you with a megaphone in Chicago during the fur protests. And it Mm. kind of blew my mind. I was like, Whoa, I know this, (laughs) I know this person. He's like in the, in the corporate group at DLA Piper. And he's got this, this history. This is very interesting because prior to that, even after my diet changed, I still had like a negative perception of animal rights activists. I remember I was actually doing, uh, research at the University of Oregon's neuroscience lab. We were doing research on zebrafish in between my in a couple of my summers. And I remember hearing about the the super tight security, um, not so much in our lab, but there was actually a lab that was doing research on primates. And it was very, very hush hush. I didn't find out about it for a long time. And it was said, you know, you know, And the reason that I learned it was so hush-hush is that the University of Oregon neuroscience lab had actually been raided by the ALF. It was that Trone case in the 1980s. And the legacy still existed, but people there had this very negative perception of animal rights activists. It was like, they're, they're the bad guys. They're the enemy. Like, we're doing important work here. We need to protect ourselves from these people. And I was like... At the time, I was starting to become more of an a, 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 of an animal rights conscious person mm-hmm. myself, but I kind of went along with that. But really, I mean, it was meeting you and hearing about your protest experiences that that kind of finally changed. And I remember we did that protest in Portland, Oregon, and where we <laughs> did the the poem at that <laughs> uh, that <laughs> grocery <laughs> store. Yeah, and it was it was an unusual experience, but it was a po- but it was a positive experience. I didn't feel awkward or cringy about it it, it was uncomfortable just because it was new but i was like yeah this is i think this is a good this is a good thing that yeah, we're this doing is here in the
0: gorilla poem that we used
2: to do in darkness right. they mean, lie and yeah, yeah exactly i yeah I, f- I forgot actually that john
0: actually predates you paul
2: yeah that makes john, sense john was yeah. involved I mean, that was knew, january were,
0: 2013 area yeah was i met you in 2012 right, right? in june so january yeah. 2013 some of our earliest actions like yeah in direct action of his history were with you I i totally forgot about that yeah. So why did you I mean you said you had this negative experience mm-hmm. or at least a negative right right negative attitude towards animal rights activists. Why do you think that changed? Was it just the personal relationship? Why did you not see me with a picture, you know, holding a megaphone and say that guy's weird? <laughs> I, don't know why. I he's supposed to be a corporate lawyer and he's running around with megaphones on Facebook for some reason.
2: Yeah, well, I it was actually it was the boycott veganism piece huh. uh, that it, like when I read it, it just made so much sense. I mean, yeah. because it talked about how, like the point that really stuck with me is just when you talked about, I think it's fair to say that you wrote that piece, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I'm it's not when, a named it's author. When, it's when you, t- you talked about how, like if you're at a dinner party and somebody says, so, you know, somebody makes a homophobic comment, like, yeah. you know, gay people should be in prison or something like that, you don't just sit there and, mm-hmm. and let it slide and laugh along with it or, or validate what they're saying. You challenge it. Mm-hmm. And why should it be any different when people say something that has a negative effect on, on non-human animals who are also victims? So that that really was what got me thinking mm-hmm. that, like, no, we actually like we need to use our voices. We need to speak out. And you also made the point that we need to act. We need to sometimes physically intervene to stop violence from happening. Yeah. And that stuck with me.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's understated because we live in the era of TikTok where everything's happening like one-minute videos. But Book Out is, is, I think, it's maybe 17 pages. It's a pretty long article. and right. single-spaced and small font. wasn't even really published, and so not that many people have seen it. I mean, more than I, you would expect for an article that was never published because it apparently went viral on Tumblr a couple times and also got me in trouble... Mm-hmm. Actually, I've all friend Dave in Chicago, because um, Dave initially did not like that piece. I oh, think. really? I'm surprised. Yeah, I, I, He eventually I, I, did I, like it, okay. but initially, I, 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 you know, I could be destroying him and, and <laughs> inappropriately criticizing him, but I, I think I recall he was the, the leader of a group called Vegan Represent okay. back in Chicago. You probably have never heard of Vegan Represent. No. Okay. So there were two big forms in veganism in like the mid-2000s, which is when this piece was originally written. One was called Vegan Freaks which went down, this is like a Gary Francione forum. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember the name of the two people, but it was the people who wrote, uh, what is the name of the book? Hmm. I think the book is actually just called Vegan Freaks. Hmm. But anyways, there's another forum called Vegan Represent. And Vegan Freaks was like the radical forum. Vegan Represent was the more moderate vegan forum. And I posted this article just for feedback in both forums and got banned from both of them. (laughs) And Hmm. Dave was running Vegan Represent. Um, understandably, because the you know the title was Boycott Veganism, Super Clickbait, mm-hmm. kind of trolling the community. Yeah. When you read the article, I think you get a different sense of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to attack vegans at all, really. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we should eat animals. I'm just saying, literally the subhead, if you read beyond the title, the title was Boycott Veganism. The subhead was animal rights goes beyond your diet. Right. And I think just most people didn't see that second line. It wasn't Weird. about how we should eat animals and do whatever we want to them, and veganism is stupid and doesn't matter. Although, I, you know, Paul, you may actually think that. But it was more just about how this is a political movement, not just a dietary movement. Yeah, so. yeah. But anyways, and the point I, I was trying I, to make I was, actually
2: disagreed with it, too, when I first read it. Yeah. I rejected it. Huh. But, then, but then you also had that line that was like, most of this you'll probably reject. And I was like, oh, crap, he's right. <laughs> like, okay, maybe I need to yeah. think <laughs> twice about it. I think I added that after I got banned.
0: <laughs> 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 I think the version that ended up getting circulated was like with revisions after I was banned from a bunch of forums. Yeah. Um, I will say... I'm pretty confident that Dave reinstated me because Dave's a smart guy, mm-hmm. really thoughtful. Yeah. Really, really good person. I yeah, mean, I love, I love the guy. Yeah. Um, but Dave ultimately read it, thought about it more carefully, and said, he yeah, actually I ended up defending me a lot over the years, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, yeah. it's how many people can change in that way, going from feeling super antagonized by someone who's attacking your identity to the point that I don't even know if he was the admin who banned me, but I'm pretty sure was banned on his forum, and he was the leader of that group to turning around and defending him and, and being a part of the group that he starts. And Dave was, you mm-hmm. know, and, and still is, someone I consider a great friend and supporter. So, huh. yeah, the world can change. But part of the reason it changes is sometimes it's not the clickbait stuff that gets 5 million views. It's the weird, arcane, academic article of 17 pages that 100 people read. But one of those people is John Frommeyer, and another is, is Dave. And I'm totally forgetting his last name.
1: I don't even know if he uses it anymore. Really? Um, but Yeah. He changed his name. Well, you know, yeah, we at not least talk about that? probably maybe not. Like okay, I, I no think mind. he's like became private over the years, and you know, but I, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, he's a good guy. Yeah, Whatever he's going awesome. by now. He's awesome. a good guy, and yeah. he he organized a lot of really great stuff because he was the founder of the Chicago Vegan Meetup too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think was the biggest vegan meetup in the world for a while. Oh wow! So, anyways, love you, Dave. You're awesome. Yeah, love you, Dave. So let's 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 talk about how we all came together. Um, I don't remember, how I, how, <laughs> how did how did this project start? I, I, I'm sure I started it. The, I mean, specifically the Smithfield case that we're mm-hmm. right. all involved in in some way. I mean, John, you've managed to get out of the case. I mean, voluntarily, and we voluntarily in many ways stayed in because yeah. Yeah. you had to take an awful plea bargain, but it was a good plea bargain nonetheless. Um, but it can was. you just tell me, could, I mean, you could just say, talk to each other too, but how did you first hear about this idea of going to the largest pig farm in the nation? Mm-hmm. Well, to was me, it from me or was it, it from somebody else? How did it all work?
1: I mean, the way it played out in my mind anyway was that uh, I think 2016 National Animal Rights Conference uh, went to in Los Angeles and um, Condition One was there with their VR setup. Mm. And uh, we're like, wow, this is... Uh, I mean, at the time, I had never tried virtual reality and I put it on and it took me into this terrible, um, to this slaughterhouse where, you know, you sort of are side by side with someone when they, when they get it. And uh, it was so, so... Painful and really impactful. It's like they say that, you know, you can you can write things, but when you see an image, sometimes it really just affects you more. But when you're in, like, the virtual reality, like, that really sort of puts you there. I think it does something to your, you know, your empathy or whatever, and, and your body really feels like you're there. So you really felt it. Um, luckily, afterwards... They, Can you just
0: describe what's in that video?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's in a... Cause I
0: didn't actually watch uh-huh, it, because I think in, it was too hard for me to watch.
1: Yeah, it's. It, I, I think it was Mexico. Uh, it was definitely a slaughterhouse for pigs. And I think, from my understanding, the producers... Um, Posed as uh, industry folks who wanted to document the process mm. to, you know, develop machinery or something. So kudos to the creative, you know, way to get the terrible footage. But yeah, you're you're in the slaughterhouse, and it's um, not much different than the ones in the U.S. You know, it's like a, a smaller scale. Um, but yeah, you, you follow someone as they're, you know, kind of herded from place to place, and you know, ultimately into the shoot. And, um, you and mean
0: follow a pig? Not yeah, a, not yeah, a yeah. So
1: I say somebody a lot. So if yeah. you're listening to this and it's, it's a little jarring, I just, I just kind of take that species thing away yeah. a little bit. I just think everybody yeah, who's, yeah, sure. who's got a mind or a personality is a person. So um, yeah, it follows them, and and then you know you, you witness what happens to them, and mm-hmm. uh, and they get killed. And. And it's really hard and um, you feel it you're I'm crying, you know, and uh, then yeah. then they show you a video at, at a sanctuary of somebody who was rescued and they get to kind of go touch grass for the first time, be outside. And that helps a little bit it gives you a little bit of time for your tears to dry up before you take your virtual reality goggles off and look like you yeah. just, you know, you're like a wreck. Um, but it was powerful and and. Uh, I was like, wow, this is just amazing. And then, yeah, I think uh, their people talked to our people, whatever, and yeah. and talked about working on a project sometime. And then the other thing that jumps out of my mind is that at the time, Utah was in, quote-unquote, agag gag state. That's right, yeah. And, and we were and talking it, about that a lot. Yeah, as somebody mm-hmm. who values transparency, like when I see a state instituting laws that are specifically designed to keep things in the dark, that would motivate me to want to go there, yeah. you know, in particular. Do uh, you know so. that video
0: that that video. I think it was an animal quality. It was um, the animal equality. I think so. Available?
1: Um, I, I bet it is. I'm not sure, on but YouTube? yeah, probably yeah. if you've got, um, you know, the VR headset or something, you can probably find that animal equality, yeah. uh, check I their think, website. Now. now that
0: you describe it, I think I do remember. And yeah. I think the point I, I took the goggles off. It's weird that I, I did this because I've been in so many awful situations that are, you know, as, as bad or worse than that. Mm-hmm. But one strange thing about watching it versus investigating it is you're more in touch with your own feelings because your yeah. adrenaline isn't running and you're not in this fight mm. or flight mode. So, like, I feel like the more complex parts of your brain can actually be activated and process things like mm-hmm. empathy more. Yeah. Well, when you're doing an investigation, it's just like, got to get the shot. There's someone watching us. There's a sound over here. They're you're framing. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's different. So, in many ways, watching the footage for me is, is harder. Same. And, and actually, even the footage I shoot, so yeah. like replicating the experience and just remembering, holy shit, that's what I saw. But the part that forced me to shut it down is when, is I think I, I have this distinct recollection of like blood just yeah. spraying everywhere. I'm just like, right, I'm done. Yeah. I'm not watching this. And I had to take them off. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be careful.
1: That's, you know, that, that could be, you know, stress inducing for yeah. sure.
0: And did you, did, did I, did we not talk about, I know for me, a big part of the reason this project was important was gestation crates. Did we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Field like, commitment they at, made at and, the time they had okay. made
1: the commitment, so we knew the clock was ticking. You know, mm-hmm. and I also think the common thing at the time, like Direct Action Everywhere had done, you know, investigations before, and we would see the same spiel in the press where they'd reach out for comment to the industry or the the, the factory farm, and they would say, "Oh, the activists are just showing you what they want." It's right. this edited video, and, and to me, I'm like, "Well, hey, look, VR's out. Um, y'all could turn around, do a 360, look around. We're." Wherever you want. Like we're not pointing the camera at a, you know, the only thing you can see. So like, let's just let people look wherever they want, and then they can decide for themselves if they think what's happening here is okay.
0: And record Mm -hmm. the entire time we're in there. Yeah, so they can see everything we do from the moment we step in. Were you at that
2: conference? I was at that conference. Yeah, I do. I do remember being at that conference. I remember that was when I I met you for the first time, Paul. And you really, you gave an address to the the group uh, first the first night, and I was like, wow, this is this is really cool. Like, awesome. Yeah, I'm really impressed by what this. What this person has to say. So That's awesome. Yeah, that's really great.
0: Was that the one we packed like all those people into the hotel room? I think (laughs) think we did that. Oh, I think we did that. Yeah, but (laughs) I remember there was so many people in the hotel room, we couldn't fit anybody. Yeah. And then they gave us a conference room after that.
1: We were like kind of just taking conference rooms in the evening. So there'd be like all the actual programming for the day. And then DXC would just be like, all right, this room is open. Let's like hold our thing.
0: I think that was also the year. Was that the year we showed Truth Matters at the conference? 2016? Sounds about 2015? right. Um, no, a Truth
1: no. Matters would have been out for a while. It okay, came out in twenty fifteen. Yeah, that would yeah. probably have been in, in DC. Yeah.
2: I, th- I think that affected
1: a lot of people too. I know. Um, yeah. 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 Uh,
0: so about you, what's your what's your recollection of how you got involved in all this stuff?
2: Well, you, I I was working. I was still working at DLA at the time, but I was thinking. Of, I'd been thinking about quitting for a long time. You know, Amy had just passed away, and I thought maybe there were more important things to do. And then you called me once sometime and toward the end of 2016. And you just said that you were, you were thinking that about doing an investigation of Smithfield and you just gave me some time, you know, we talked about it. We talked about some of the legal risks. You mentioned that there was prosecute, you know, prosecution would be a possibility mm-hmm. and Understatement of the year. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think you actually said there was a ten percent chance of prosecution. Yeah. I mean,
0: cumulatively, that might still be true.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Across yeah, no. all
0: our open rescues, think about the number of open rescues you've had and the number of prosecutions. It might actually be ten percent.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So. But, um, and then I thought or about I might it. Might just
0: be wrong. For the record, we'll do the calculation and this all. Sounds all. reasonable. <laughs> yeah. But go ahead.
2: But you know, I was just I I'd known about Smithfield. I'd. I, I I can't remember if I like read that Rolling Stone article that came out about yeah. them, or maybe I read about them in Jonathan Safran Foer's book, but I mean, I knew that they were extremely abusive and exploitative. And so I was interested in, in actually trying to see it for myself. And then I think just a few weeks later, I decided to, you know, I just made the decision that I didn't want to quit. Hmm. And then I called you and said, called you back and said, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to be part of this team. And I remember you'd also mentioned the Sundance Festival, mm-hmm. which I didn't end up being being part of but that was also very interesting oh, you that, weren't there no wasn't. at Sundance you no, were with Al right? Gore yeah that was,
0: that was a really cool experience <laughs> yeah yeah not just Al Gore but Lori David Lori mm-hmm. David's wife hmm. who is I think the executive producer and the main force behind an inconvenient truth and a lot of amazing climate activism and has increasingly been interested in agricultural issues she gave me a hug afterwards and was like tearing up um, mm. and has become a supporter and I've stayed in touch with her over the years she's amazing
1: we were there with the first VR that we did, um, Egg Farm 360. That's right. Uh, yeah. We
0: hadn't actually even done Death Star at that point. We just knew right. the technology mm-hmm. was possible and, and that there was an appetite for it, that people mm-hmm. wanted to see this sort of thing. And and this isn't even... I mean, the future VR is going to be way bigger because yeah. the resolution isn't super high quality. There's still some nausea issues, but it's still a pretty powerful experience. You can put on those headsets and walk into a factory farm or a slaughterhouse, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, I think I remember you. You had literally just quit your job. Yeah, And I think. Yeah, maybe next... it was within days. It was right? was
2: one day. Yeah, it <laughs> really one day. After yeah, that? yeah. So, so
0: you literally, I, I did a, I did a talk about from corporate law to climbing barbed wire. You literally did that like within
2: right. one day. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You quit your well,
0: corporate law job, and well, then one I, was day on, later, I was on a. Well, I was on, a, on the way. To I was on a barbed plane barbed within one day to the, the, barbed wire. the, the
2: Barbing barbed wire yeah. took probably another. For the few record, days we don't after.
0: always have to climb barbed wire, and actually, usually we don't.
2: But yeah. it's
0: sometimes you do. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was supposed to be two days because I um, I was supposed to stop on a Friday, but then I still had some more projects that I wanted to do, so I ended so up, you ended up I ended up Saturday. pulling an all nighter, and then still was like working all, all on Saturday, and I had to make sure that like I wouldn't get logged out of the you computer know. because then I would not be able to log back in, and then I ended up leaving like late at night, and I got really sick. So I was sick for the first few days of the investigation, but then the, and then I was on a plane on Sunday to Provo.
0: The fact that the culture of a corporate law firm made you pull an alder on the day that you're leaving the job <laughs> is a well, good reason no one should work at a corporate law firm. If yeah. you're one of the people listening to this podcast and you work at a corporate law firm, quit right now.
2: Yeah, you have one
0: life to live. Make it a good one.
2: Well, to be fair, part of it was it was like my fault because there yeah. I mean there was this matter that I kind of had screwed up on. And it just, it took me weeks to kind of like, like, I, I just, it was one of the things where I like, I was dreading actually like facing it and figuring yeah. out like drafting the email to the partner, explaining like, okay, how does the person who takes my spot end up like sure. fixing this? And so that's like what I was, that's what I was doing. I saved that for the very end. And then I, it took me kind of basically the whole night to like figure it all out. See, but
0: what corporate law does to you, I, I don't doubt that's true. What corporate law does to you is it make things, makes things a priority that are just not a priority That you. is by, true. By any that is absolutely sense true. Of what is important yes. in the world and what is not. I totally agree. Who cares? Yeah. And I even totally if you agree. You fucked up the deal. Like, yeah. I'm trying to think, did I fuck up any deals? I probably fucked up some deals. I don't even remember. I mean, there are probably all these documents that I drafted that I messed something up on. Right. But, well, I mean, I, we should always be accountable for our mistakes and try to do better. At the end of the day, the mistakes you make making some huge corporation or even a startup their next million or billion dollars don't matter at all compared right. to saving somebody's life. Yeah, You know, like we all have one life to live. Let's make mm-hmm. it worth it. And just, I don't know, so many miserable people at these firms too. They're just not happy because yeah. they know they're not doing anything good for the world. Right. It's a and sad I, life. And I think
2: it's the same. I've, I've,
0: I, I, actually, let me just okay. pull that back in case any of her friends, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ideally Pepper is still working. I'm not saying these are bad people. And, and mm-hmm. I will say there is a pathway, yeah. you know, we have a friend named Craig who's still an amazing attorney at that firm. He does great, great work for his clients. And he helps animals, too, in various ways. It's because he makes a lot right. of money. He's got a lot of influence. So I'm not saying I shouldn't shit on everybody who works in that profession. But I will say the people like Craig are unusual in a corporate law firm who are using the power and wealth they develop for something they really believe in. Most people end up trapped with golden handcuffs. And that's a shitty way to live your life, yeah. friends. So, anyways. So d- tell me about the mental state, though. Like, what, <laughs> Speaking of mental state. <laughs> We've been my talking about mental states a lot. States a lot. Yeah, what was your mens rea when yeah. you decided to commit the crime, John? No, uh, John didn't commit any crimes, for the record. Mens rea is a legal term that means, um, I think it just means criminal intent, actually. Maybe, sure. What does it mean?
2: Well, mens know, is like, mind, and then rea is like, isn't mental that like state? state
0: mind, mental state. Yeah, yeah, but what was your leaving a law firm within a day or two and then... Flying out to Utah to do this investigation, like what were your what were you feeling? I mean, why'd you decide to do that? It's such a dramatic change to your life.
2: Yeah, well, I, I was definitely nervous. I didn't know exactly what I was gonna do. But I I mean I the main thing was just relief. Like yeah. I just really, really, really wanted to be to be done with with corporate law. And nothing again, I I have nothing against DLA. And I actually think that as far as corporate firms go, the, the department that we were in, in Silicon Valley was actually good. I yeah. mean, it was, it was a fun job in a lot of ways. It was nice to be able to advise people and help them structure things. And I, I did enjoy that aspect, but it was, it just wasn't for me. It was just, it, it, it was just, it was too much stressing over things that didn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it was, and I mean, what you said was absolutely true. Like it, it distorts your perception And things that are objectively not important at all are just, in in the moment, monumentally important. Like if you make a mistake on something, even if you can correct it, even if it like, even if you don't correct it, the deal goes through. It's still not really going to matter because people just pick up the phone and they're just like, oh, that one thing, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a discrepancy in the numbers. Don't worry about it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, because you've got, you've got to like put on this air of perfection because your billing rate is 500 an hour, 550 an hour. And so partners are very, very sensitive about maintaining perfection, both for themselves and everybody who's working for them. And so it just, it, it changes priorities a lot. And I just wanted to do something where, like, I, 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 I'm okay with stress, but I want to stress about something that's that actually meaningful yeah. in the world. Like the case that, like, I w- I've been very stressed out about this Utah case, because yeah. I really I don't want... to you've been
0: more stressed than me and Paul. <laughs> 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 Thank Partly you, much. Well, because look, you're I doing just... a lot of the good work that should... Be prevailing well, and we're not prevailing, at least legally. Yeah, we're not well, prevailing I mean, you two are so far.
2: you two are you you decided to, to continue on with the risk. Yeah. I mean, three of us took a plea deal, it was a good plea deal, it was a different plea deal than what was offered to you two. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was a brave thing, and I really I give kudos to you both for yeah. having the courage to just continue on and face prison and face mm-hmm. the, the Utah Attorney General, who is not ethical, who is not doing what is right. I think they're, very, they're extremely unethical. And I, I think that Reyes and McCannis and this uh, other, the appellate attorney, what is her name? I, I forget. Marion something. Uh, Marion Decker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think someday they're all going to look back and regret what they're doing. Um, it's funny because it's been over five years and I feel more proud of that investigation than almost anything else that I've done in my life. I Damn. think we actually made a huge difference. Yeah, I think we have affected the consciousness of people all across the country. It hasn't flowed through to institutions yet, and that's been disheartening to see. Um, maybe it has in some ways, but... Um, pop, two, pop 12 passed. Yeah. DXC
0: was able to get an effective farm moratorium bill at least introduced, which is honestly mm-hmm. a historic mm-hmm. victory. Even yeah. just getting it introduced, it's kind of... Still astonishing to me that True. one of the largest farming states in the nation, a bill was passed saying this, you can't build any new ones. It's like, you're basically shutting down one of the largest industries in the state of California. Yeah. So we've made some, yeah, yeah. for sure. But sure. I'm not saying anyway. we can take exclusive credit. For of course, things, of course not. But it's all part of the same movement that mm-hmm. is pushing for change and achieving a lot of it.
2: Yeah. So, but anyway, I'm getting away from here. Oh, and by the yeah. way, I don't actually like calling people out. Like I don't yeah. like calling people out like Sean Reyes and Janice McCannis, but I actually think I'm. I do actually think I'm doing them a favor. Forever, yeah. I think that we are doing a favor by calling people out sometimes because I don't think they it, it's fully I don't think they're using their entire brains. And I don't think they're fully conscious of what they're doing and how much harm they are enabling yeah. by going after you instead of going after Smithfield, but I think it's going to sink in. I hope that it sinks in for them. I don't think that that's not really justice in my mind, but it's at least it could lead to some kind of positive change. So I, I think it's, I think calling people out is actually the loving thing to do sometimes. Yeah. Um, anyway, but we're getting back to the question about mental state. I was, I was relieved to be done. And I mean, I was nervous about <laughs> what exactly are, are we getting into here? But I, I, I also very much, uh, I, I trusted both of you and the other people on the team and I thought what we were doing was going to have a positive impact. So I was, I was excited about it.
0: Yeah. Were you scared?
2: Not, not really. Really? No, I wasn't that scared. Why I mean, not? when we were actually—I <laughs> mean, I t- I
0: told you we're going to infiltrate this pig farm, go against one of the largest corporations in the world, and even if it's a ten percent risk of prosecution, I probably told yeah. you at the time. It's, I mean, the prosecution could be felonies, right? I, you know, I—I I know you know, right? That we have friends now, mutual. I mean, I think you consider Lauren a friend, right? Yeah, Rizola? for sure. We have mutual friends who have served serious prison time for mm-hmm. activism. So. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. I was nervous. On the nights when we were actually there, huh. and I didn't want to just get caught and arrested on the spot and yeah. end up in a Utah jail. And there were some dicey but, moments. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I figured that even if we had to fight it, I thought it, I, I, I thought that we it would... be worth the fight. It yeah. would be worth the fight. I thought even just the publicity, I thought that the public would mostly be on our side, Yeah, um, which I, I still think is true. I don't think that's necessarily true in Utah, but I think sure. most the average person is horrified when they see the footage that we had, that we, that we got from that night. And I think they would understand and support people who, who do this kind of thing. I say people who do this kind of thing. No, very few people do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any actual like open rescue investigations that are kind of ongoing in the, in the country right now, which is, which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. I hope but changes. there's,
0: there's more now than there's been in a long time, maybe in American history. And it's, I'd say it's gone down That's a little true. bit. I actually think it's gone down mostly because of the pandemic, and less so because of right. repression. I think repression, if anything, caused backfired and caused more people to get fired up and mm-hmm. want to do this work. Because mm-hmm. um, the first prosecutions in DxE history were you and Diane, and, and actually, let's acknowledge the team member of this investigation who's not with us, Diane, mm-hmm. Andy Sorby, who yeah. you know we lost a couple of years ago right at the beginning of the pandemic, which yeah. is awful. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, not not entirely sure how she died, and yeah. ultimately her husband died too, in, in awful circumstances. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I think there's some suspicious suspicion that it could have been COVID. We don't know, mm-hmm. but it was. Sure. I think it was March or April of 2020. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. she was. I mean, it was such a fun team, like yeah. Diane and Samer and Andrew and you and me and 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 Paul. Mm-hmm. It was. It was. I mean, it's it's a weird thing because it was really stressful and. I don't think I get nervous, but I definitely feel the intensity of the stress. But even though I've been through these really intense experiences, I don't think they've hurt me at all because I always understood there was a purpose behind it. And Doug McAdam, who I just had on the podcast, it's actually the most recent podcast, said something pretty similar that I'd never heard that was, but that rang true to me. And I think it's actually true. I like dug around and tried to find out if what he said was true. And what he said was this, for all the people who died... Um, Our lost loved ones in 9 11, almost nobody suffers any PTSD from it. For Mm -hmm. all the firefighters who saw people jumping from buildings, you know, and the reason is because they felt like the community came together afterwards and Mm -hmm. they had plenty of support. And and in many ways, it felt like there was a purpose to their death and the tragedies, you know, all the tragedies because, you know, we know I not agree with this, but America went after and got bin Laden, you know, And, and there's, we, and more importantly, we all came together. Like nobody who died at 9-11 is seen as like, oh, we don't like that person or, you know, good riddance. It's just, it's a tragedy. And everyone understood it's a tragedy. And the entire nation was giving so much support to the people who died from that, that mm-hmm. they don't feel PTSD. And Rob Duroff, another friend of ours. Mm-hmm. Do you all remember Rob? Oh, of course. CSF, Great guy. Um, I want to have him on the podcast sometime soon about he's suicide because he's done some really interesting, <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound <laughs> of that. What's your take on suicide Paul? Uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, it's not for me, I would say. Uh, yeah. Have you tried but, it though? <laughs> but I mean, I haven't, I don't know the science on it. I mean, yeah, I've, I've, yeah. Uh, I've got a history, but, okay. Um, All right, okay. but yeah, like, I mean, you know, you look, you read the science a little bit. Yeah. It seems like it's certainly helpful to some folks. So, um, yeah, I'd be happy for anybody to be struggling with stuff and find yeah. something that helps them. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, I think Rob told me this once, but um, I don't know if you all knew this, but he treats veterans with PTSD. Yeah. So he's got like a lot of older patients. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a professor at UCSF, but he's also a clinician. He works at, I think, the Veterans Hospital. He's actually a veteran himself. Um, he served in Iraq, I think it was, treating, I think he actually treated a lot of LGBTQ mm-hmm. um, veterans who were experiencing something, and a lot of them maybe were in the military and came from a place that wasn't very receptive or open to gay rights and they may have come out or realized their sexuality or their gender identity in the military. And he's been helping them, which is oh, cool. amazing work. Whatever you think of the military, Rob is doing like really, really awesome, ah, yeah, Rob's awesome. Great guy. But one of the things Rob told me, pretty sure it's Rob, sorry, Rob, if I did this wrong, but someone told me this and I'm pretty sure it was Rob, is there's a pretty big difference between veterans of uh, the Vietnam and Korean war and World War II. Hmm. Because after World War II, it was seen as like a good war and everyone came back and they got support. You know, well, right. after Korea and Vietnam, not only did we lose, but they were bad wars. Yeah. I mean, I don't need, I'm, this is super controversial, but I'm going to go on a limb and say, I don't even know if World War II was a good war because I kind of feel like all wars are bad wars. And mm, they're right. always bad in the sense a lot of people suffer and die. But the public perception of World right. War II is, this is a righteous war. We did the right thing. Well, Vietnam, I think the conventional wisdom, even among like neocons on the right is, That was a bad war, and we did a lot of bad things. Like, the U.S. government is really responsible for this, and we Mm. sacrificed a lot of Vietnamese lives. In Korea, we sacrificed a lot of Korean and Chinese lives. A lot of people don't realize how many Chinese people died in the Korean War. Mm. I think, I think could be wrong about this, but I think more Chinese people died than Korean people in the Korean Mm. War. Most people don't know that. But both of these wars, we kind of lost them, and they were seen as, like, kind of imperial wars. We're going to this other country, and, like, literally napalming entire villages. Like, little kids are burning alive. And there's photos of this, Vietnam especially, because we had, you know, television that was live for the first time in history. And you could see, like, blow by blow, all the awful things that were happening. And so, when all these vets came back and they didn't have support, they're developing PTSD in a way that the, the generation from World War II didn't have. So, but, anyways, my point is, like, for all the absurdity we've had to go through with Smithfield and the arrests and the prosecutions and the fear we felt, I hear you when you say, like, I didn't actually feel that nervous because mm-hmm. you know what you're doing is right you know you know what you're doing is good and that makes a huge difference yeah. you can go through an enormous amount of sacrifice and stress when you believe in what you're doing yeah and that's what, what the, one of the saddest things about the american workforce today is how many people believe at all in what they're doing on any level you know yeah like they're not being paid enough they certainly don't believe in their corporations even within the nonprofit industrial complex the number of people who work for big nonprofit organizations who do not believe in the organization's mission is terrifying. I won't say who, won't name names, but I know a lot of them, Hmm. even within animal rights and environmentalism. Yeah. And something's got to change because human beings weren't meant to do things that didn't matter to them even. Yeah. So anyways, were you afraid Paul? I mean, by this time you're already kind of a vet yeah
1: I never like was is- afraid of any of it like it just always um, I just always went into it thinking about the worst possible scenarios, think of ways to avoid those and minimize those um, and then you know like our work like direct action everywhere it 's like a lot of it is about building community and um, i mean i 've been so blessed and lucky to have like a super supportive group, like family all my life and friends as well. Um, and then oh, on top mom. on top of that mm-hmm. yeah and on top of that like you know these people who I'm you know around geographically now like working on this mission um, I just feel like hey like whatever happens here like I'm gonna have like a lot of people behind me and mm-hmm. um, like things I have to go through that other people have to go through like they have to go through it alone sometimes everything's against them you know um, they don't they're not gonna have support inside or outside sometimes so sure. uh, yeah I just always felt like hey you know, if anything, I'm excited because it's a challenge. Um, it's an opportunity. You know, I'm thinking about like I want to get the best footage possible. I want to be steady with my hand. I want to not make noise and yeah. set off dogs barking. And um, I just want to do my best to try to help people see what's actually happening back here. Because again, I just think everybody wants to see yeah. and they want to know. So I want to try to help them.
0: You know, it's funny. I knew this about you, even though I'd never seen you in the field. I don't know. Why. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe I was just falsely confident, like overconfident in my ability to read you. <laughs> But I remember when I first met you, and then learned a little about you. I don't know remember when I learned this, but I learned you're good with your hands. You're good with tools. Mm-hmm. You know, probably I learned that you're a roofer yeah. in the past, and I thought, okay, that's a skill set we need because confession, I'm terrible. With tools. <laughs> Paul can tell you, like I didn't, we don't have to go into all the, the dumb details of the fact that I didn't know how to use a screwdriver properly until <laughs> Paul taught me like two weeks ago when I moved here. And I'm like, Paul, how do you use a power driver? I don't understand how to unscrew this. And he's like, you just turn it left or whatever it was. I don't even remember what you told me, but it was very simple stuff that I felt very stupid, but I was glad to have. But honestly, it wasn't even the tool skills that made me think Paul's going to be a great team member and eventually leader. It was the fact that you're always calm. You did not strike me as someone who would break down in a crisis. And that's proven true. In yeah. All the years I've known you, I've never seen you afraid. Paul. Yeah,
1: thanks. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, fear's not the things that I, I just, I, I know there's consequences and I don't want those consequences sometimes. Yeah. And, but when you have support and you feel like, hey, you know, it's worthwhile, I think it's the key. I wouldn't do any of this stuff if I didn't think it was going to be worthwhile. Um, but if you feel like, yeah, there's like, this is an opportunity to, you know, open some eyes for people to see things, uh, it, like that's, it's like, it's worth it then, you know, in my yeah. opinion, for sure.
0: But yeah. why weren't you afraid of getting prosecuted or sued? Cause you'd never even been arrested before all this, right?
1: I mean, maybe it's just partly, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I lived a, this long life already. I mean, I'm, I'll turn 45 in December, but all my Shout life. Shout out to all the 40 year olds
0: out
2: there. John's going to join us in a few years. In a few years? Two years. 45 wait two years to 40 uh three yeah i'm 37 all right well paul
1: and our both yeah, working 40. on it no, I, I just i just have i've been i've had everything except you know money and and i've yeah. had enough i've always had enough money to put food in my belly and have a roof over my head um and, but i've been healthy i've been had a loving family had loving relationships friends you know done things you know read things saw things i just i just feel super lucky and if so i'm just comfortable i'm like you know what i like, maybe someday I'll break down. Like, like if I'm in prison and, and it's the worst of the worst at times, then, you know, I'm going to not enjoy that whatsoever. And it might break me or, or anything. But either way, like, compared to most people on the planet, I've just had it relatively easy by far. And... You know, so So no matter what, doesn't
0: that make hardship harder?
1: I think it does sometimes. I think it breeds fragility. And, (laughs) um, I mean, yeah, I think if like, not in you, maybe not in me, yeah, I mean, or maybe I'll maybe I'll learn otherwise eventually, but yeah, I think a lot of times you see people who've had had it easy, and then 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 when shit hits the fan, it's like, like, prison gets harder because you are, you know, yeah, so
0: repression becomes harder because you haven't experienced it as much, yeah,
1: yeah. My parents just always, I mean, my dad would always say, like, just, it's like, I release that which doesn't serve my highest good. That's like a, you know, you might hear that kind of thing sometime. Like,
0: say that again? Uh,
1: my dad would always say, I release that which does not serve my highest good. Huh. And so, it's that's like, if you're de- even if you're dealing with real life stresses and pressures, like, I get stressed. I deal with all that stuff. Like, I try to just be like, well, you know, like, can I do something about it? Can I change it? If I can, sure. If I can't, just bear it and, you know, do your best. And okay. again, that's a, that's a privileged, you know, position to be in. Like, it's just... I don't know. You know, my brain chemistry, whatever. Yeah, I'm just a little, little less geared towards uh, hyper. Um, you, do you know, think West Virginia
0: culture is anything to this. I might be stereotyping. I mean, Maybe might even be a little messy. West up. Virginia. I mean, Apple, like, Apple... when I imagine West Virginia, I imagine like mm-hmm. a tough coal miner who, like, because coal mining. I, I, again, I could be ignorant about this, mm-hmm. and I know you weren't living near the coal mines, but mm-hmm. it's still West Virginia and part of the culture of West Virginia. Oh yeah. But my understanding is it's a hard job. A lot uh-huh. of people die. A lot of people get sick. And to do that job, and I'm, you know, one of the many reasons we need to move away from coal isn't even setting aside the environmental consequences, the human consequences immediately for the workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Canarian coal mine is literally, you Darn. know, an example of how. Every day you go into work, I mean, it's, it's fucked up that we use the canaries to test out whether there's gas that could kill you. But every day you go to work, you could die. I think it's one of the most dangerous jobs. So yeah. do you think that was like West Virginia culture that just is like kind of grin and bear it? Uh,
1: maybe. I mean, West Virginia culture, like, yeah, for better or worse, I think it produces kind of tough folks. I mean, it's uh, like Appalachian folks. Like, I'm, I'm from the north, um, so it's a little different up there. Mm. Uh, but all, all the pickle timers down south, uh, they're all coal miners and stuff down there. But in general, like everybody, the state, it's one of those states that... It's like it's always really high in the things you don't want to be high in. Like right now, it's the number one state for opioid deaths, you know, per capita. Is it really um, number one? Yeah, yeah. Damn. According to TikTok, I saw it the other day <laughs> a, a, a young woman. Did she's one uh, thing you yeah, TikTok. Yeah, yeah. My mom sent me a video, and it's this uh, this twenty uh, three year old woman, and she's kind of fighting right now to have Mansion either start doing some things that are going to be helpful, like yeah. you know, helping West Virginia's vote make the election day a holiday. Um, just and try this to, is Senator Joe Manchin. For yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, not your senator anymore, but you, right. Right. Um, but yeah, like uh, it's just all like, you know, we struggle with um, all the things you don't want to struggle with. We struggle with. And it's yeah. and it's uh, it's a state where when you're talking about coal mines, like a lot of that, that those resources coming out of the ground, like mm-hmm. that money's not staying in the state. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's a little it's one of those kind of places that the United States sort of exploits like right within itself. Yeah. And yeah, I think it makes kind of Appalachian folks kind of tough in general. Do you, do
0: you know anyone who's suffering or who, families that have died? You know, not families that have died, but individuals who died from the opioid crisis in West Virginia? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. My high school, like, see, I missed it. Um, I'm glad. I'm really glad. Um, because like as a, you know, young person in West Virginia, there's not much to do. So you end up doing whatever. And uh, I was I was out of that kind of stage by the time uh, you know heroin yeah. and stuff came in and uh, at a high level anyway. But now it's just really common. Like yeah, yeah I, I see my friends that their their nieces, their nephews, their children, always classmates. Yeah, people die pretty yeah. often. It happens. Yeah. And
2: by the way, I think psilocybin could do a lot of good in terms of helping people with the opioid. And, I think and Rob Roth would
0: agree. Yeah, I had a conversation recently. He said for for people <clears> suffering <throat> from all sorts of addiction trauma and addiction. Yeah you know, just kind of rewires your brain. It like yeah. opens up all the wiring. But I just posted this on Twitter sign so, I, so it's, it's salient for me. Um, for the first time in history in America, passed 100,000 overdose deaths in a single year last year. And the chart is not, it's not like a slow increase. It is wow. skyrocketing. Wow. Um, and I think the way this has been described in a number of um, publications is, these are not just deaths of addiction, They're deaths of despair Mm. because part of the reason people are resorting. And and this is why, like, as much as I think probably everybody at this table, Dean, John, Paul would agree, we got to get rid of coal. You know, the problem is there's a lot of people whose entire livelihood is on coal. And, and the way it works is it's not the big wigs and the shareholders and executives, they're going to bear the sacrifice when we shut down the coal plants. Yeah. It's your friends and their nieces and nephews who have nothing left, and it's just, not only do they not have entertainment, they don't have the ability to put food on their table, or the ability for their kids to go to school anymore and get an education, and when you feel everything in your community is falling apart, which, you know, I mean, this is like the mentality we have to get into when we're getting ready for this fight in Beaver County, Utah, because it's the same damn thing for them. You know, for the people in Milford, for the people in Beaver, even for the people in some of these surrounding counties, you know, like, this industry is almost everything. There are five thousand people in this county. Circle Four Farms, I think, employs like a few hundred. So probably maybe ten percent of the entire county is employed by this company. Yeah. And probably another ten to twenty percent are adjacent to the company. They're working in a cafeteria where all the workers go to eat, or they have a plumbing business where their only client is our roofing business for that matter. You know, where your mm-hmm. only client is Circle Four. Yeah. So for all these people, we want to transform this place and take. You know, we want to take the animals out and stop this violence and, and you know I'm, I'll say it we want to shut down the company I want to mm-hmm. shut down Circle 4 I want to shut down Smithfield yeah. but unless we have a positive vision and we understand the human consequences the animal consequences yeah. of this transformation and we help those people along right. we're never going to achieve change whether it's getting rid of coal in West Virginia uh, or or getting rid of animal exploitation and abuse in Milford and, and Beaver County, Utah so I don't know How's your family doing right now? I'm sorry about your dad, by the way. Ah, oh, it's okay. It earlier, and I know it's yeah, no, we awesome uh, last yeah. Year.
1: Once again, I was lucky to have such uh, so much time with my dad. You know, yeah. we, we worked together for decades. You know, I had him all my life, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't I, you know, I don't feel bad. I don't feel feel happy. I got so much, and, and my mom's doing good too. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Your mom's
0: awesome, by the way. Thanks. Yeah, she always comments on Facebook. or, or yeah, shares
1: yeah, stuff. yeah. It's hey, like mom. So yeah, she's. Fun. I'm sure she's listening. We talked. We had a good talk today. We talked for half an hour, 45 minutes. And awesome. Yeah. catching up
0: and they're both really supportive of your work right yeah always so
1: yeah. cool yeah uh, supportive of anything I, I i always like yeah i I'm just, I just, I'm just really lucky. I always never had to worry about anything with my parents. Like, yeah. they'd always accept me for anything, um, show me yeah. love when you know, at my lowest times or whatever. So why don't you want to be a parent? What's that?
0: Why don't you want to be a parent?
1: Um, you know, that's like honestly, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. yeah. I'll say it right now.
2: So I can tell you so right yeah. is, I can confirm. John, yes. I wish you yeah. could all see John's yeah. face yeah. right now. John's <laughs> reaction when he said that. Yeah.
3: Perfect. yeah. 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 Because John was like.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of sleep deprivation. Yeah, yeah I you gotta, like sleep. Being a parent's hard. Yeah, I,
0: for, just so you all know, John just had a yeah. kid. Oh yeah, and ago, so. was, I love yeah. my daughter John's so much. John's just She's not. He's my not daughter, against yeah. family and parenting. He's just, it's just <laughs> there's a cost. He's going there's through there's, a personal experience right now. Yes. Huh.
1: Yeah, I'm somewhat selfish. I got a vasectomy years ago because I yeah. I know like um, like it's it's really messed up when in sometimes activism random animal rights in particular that you'll see like my face holding some animal who I rescued like all over the place on our messaging or whatever. And it's like, I don't think people will get the idea so much that like that is just, that's one person filling one role. Mm-hmm. And then I end up getting yeah. a lot of attention for it. But yeah. meanwhile, somebody has got to do everything behind the scenes to yeah. make that happen. Someone's got to research. And in my opinion, like when you talk about like, you know, being a parent that again, it just goes to any species. So like, it's one thing to to help to help somebody escape a dangerous situation to get the help they need, and um, it's an entirely another to then dedicate your life every single day to make sure that they're fed, that they're getting to the vet yeah. when they need to be, that their areas are being cleaned out. So when we talk about people who volunteer at dog and cat shelters on mm-hmm. a regular basis or work there, talk about people who operate sanctuaries, like that's like like those people rarely get much yeah much attention, and it's just it's just it's just weird. It's ironic and yeah. Uh, let's, yeah let's they,
0: shout out Sherston and Zoe. Yeah. And Faith, who went on the record as being one of the sanctuary owners who actually was harassed by the FBI and targeted by them, you know, merely for caring for these poor baby pigs who suffered. And, you know, she's kind of retired now in New Jersey. I don't know if you all heard this, but she's in New Jersey now. Oh, really? Living with her family and passed (laughs) on the sanctuary to some other folks. Because after 30 years of that grueling, difficult work, it really does, does take a toll. And, and these folks need to be supported too not just the the folks who like you and I and John too mm-hmm. who've been in these dramatic rescues so that's right. right yeah i mean my view though is it's that work is hard but it's also incredibly rewarding um mm-hmm. and if my skill set were a little different if i were a veterinarian for example or if i felt like i um were maybe a little more patient person i think i'd actually uh love to spend a long time at a sanctuary just caring for animals. Mm-hmm. But, yeah.
2: I'd like yeah. I, I would like to do that at some point. I'd like to got just a kid. dedicate 6 months or And you have got two years kids actually. Or something.
0: Two, kids, two kids. Two kids, yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. One the and human salty and, boy. Then, and the salty boy. Yeah.
2: The Salted the dog is a lot easier to care for than the human. Yeah. I will say. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not even comparable. I believe it. Yeah. Although I think it's going to change in, you know. I don't know few years.
0: Yeah, because Salt's going to... I mean, Salt's in the later stages of life, right? Well... Oh, oh and I, the well, kid's going to get I easier. Meant the, the, yeah, yeah <laughs> that,
2: that is sadly... That is also true. We always have to say goodbye to yeah. our, our loved ones. But yeah. yeah I, I will don't... say
0: partly it's just because of the life stage too. Because yeah. when you... I mean, not that I've had a human child, so it's not for me to compare. But caring for Natalie in particular was actually very difficult. Mm. Uh, because it was similar... Again, I don't want to compare her because I've never had a human child and I don't, I don't want to offend any parents, human parents, I should say. But when Natalie was immobile um, and we needed to help her, I mean, it was very similar. Like, mm-hmm. in, like in the middle of the night, if she needed to go to the bathroom, right. she'd bark and we just had to wake up and yep. we'd, we'd yeah. help her out. Yeah. And that was a year and a half of my life. But it was also incredibly beautiful. And I think you'll have the same experience, my friend. Yeah. At the end of it, you'll come out of it saying was all worth it because you'll see what anna's become and mm-hmm. you'll remember all the things you did with her and understand the purpose behind them and they'll just make you even more powerful yeah so my tire out now it'll make you more powerful <laughs> in the long
2: term i'm yeah i'm no, sure I because that. i know
0: how much you love her already yeah like i can hear it in your voice
2: yeah. yeah that's true yeah there's nothing like just like seeing this little baby like laugh for the oh. first time like you know she did when, when we stick out our tongue and go Thoop like and make that sound <laughs> it just it cracks her up every time That's and so like, great. my wife my wife discovered this before I did and then she showed me and and, and then and Nahata started laughing and it just it sent a shiver down my spine I was like, uh-huh.
0: Anahata's the baby. Anahata, oh, okay. yeah. It's a, I call her Anna, but that,
2: that's you know. fine, yeah. But technically the, it's, a, the, it's the technically it's anah, and I uh, think A P is actually gonna hold people to that. Oh, oh. Like the pronunciations wait, wait, important to how do you pronounce it? It's Anahata. So like the accent is on the, the second A. And so it's Anahata. actually it's because it's it's Anahata. It, Anahata, okay. yeah. It's actually it's not a common Indian name, but it's a it's a Sanskrit term and it, it refers to the heart like the heart chakra and it's uh the translation is unstruck yeah and it's referring to like the unstruck yeah because it's it's referring to the original sound of creation that doesn't come from something being struck it's like the primordial nada or the primordial sound and that it like resonates the 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 heart so
0: your baby goes all the way to the beginning Ah, that's the idea Shout out to a project too, two or AP yeah it's yeah it was her it was right she wanted her, to, she's the she, one who, that,
2: that name just really resonated with her yeah and so. she cured the baby
0: for yeah. nine months that's,
2: she did that's hard work that uh, was very hard, work, hard work yeah and, so. and breastfeeding is actually I think in some ways even harder it's yeah. just it's like a full-time job because you've got to be just like pumping all the time and shout yeah. out to all the mamas out there like I, I just I would have never appreciated like the the like the formula shortage if I hadn't mm-hmm. actually seen how Damn. how yeah, difficult right. it is. Um, And I I wish, you know, every, every mother could, could breastfeed, but that's just not the reality. It's mm -hmm. like, it's just very, very hard. You you know, we, we, we kind of follow a very strict diet to ensure that, that she's, um, that she's expressing enough. And that's just not, that's not a possibility for a lot of mamas out there. So this, it's a tough time. It's a real, being a mom, being, being a parent's really stressful, but being a a mom is just like another layer of. Of difficulty,
0: including the non human moms, uh, absolutely. And in many yeah, ways, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to speak to that experience because I probably will never have almost certainly will never have that experience of, of breastfeeding. But I mean, we saw firsthand the consequences of very intense breastfeeding at yeah. before. Right? Yeah. Maybe yeah, this is a good time for us to segue into sure you know, why we we're there and what we that's saw. Where, so, uh, like, that's what, what, I was what did you all see there that you recall? Like, what were the memories that have left you, you know, stories that? You could share it with us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing would just honestly be just beforehand. Just looking at that Google satellite image, mm. when you're like, okay, so here's where we're going. You look down and just like, wow, this looks like another planet. It just looks Man. so, yeah. so many of these. Like, it's not like one factory farm. It's like a collection of you know 27 miles worth of factory farm, and and that was. That was just like stunning to begin with. I, hadn't, I didn't know that it was a thing. You know, honestly, I was like, I didn't, I'd never seen like this industry expressed in that way where it's just like you're looking at a desert essentially with all these, you know, buildings and, and shit ponds and like, and then you sort of get there in person and, and you're like, wow, you're driving around and there, look, there's a dumpster with somebody's back legs hanging out and mm-hmm. you feel like you're on another planet a little bit because there's no homes in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, dedicated to what it is. But yeah, step stepping inside. I mean, if anybody really, like, a, you know, watch Operation Death Star either in virtual reality or, or 360 on YouTube or something, and it, it won't you know really convey exactly, but it gives you an idea. You step into this dark building, and is you know as far as your eye can see, it's just gestation crates where we were at, and um, the screaming starts, and uh, you know maybe they're hungry, who knows? But they feed off each other's energy, mm-hmm. and. And in real life, like no, no group of animals is going to be housed and living in these kind of situations where there's just right. thousands and thousands of them feeding off their own stresses, and they're just screaming at the top of their lungs. And um, you're just trying to you know set up your equipment and focus on that. And then with pigs, it's just kind of unique because... Can um, I say something just real quick yeah. about that
0: that's really interesting that I just read? Uh-huh. Pigs are one of the few animals that we have scientifically proven have emotional contagion. That when a pig sees Mm. another animal, another pig experiencing an emotion, they feel the same emotion. In the same way that when you see someone cry, you might get a little sad. Mm -hmm. You see someone smiling, you might get a little happy. Happens to pigs too. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we heard all those pigs screaming, because of emotional contagion. Because it just it's like a feedback loop that amplifies itself When all the pigs that are screaming hear the other pigs screaming and they scream even louder. Yeah. Yeah. And like
2: the pig exploitation industry, like a lot of them will just like castrate the baby. Like they'll like right in front of the mom, and yeah. like she's just screaming because like her babies are being mutilated right, right in, in front of, of her. her. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know if that's. I mean, S- Smithfield, obviously, like Circle Four, obviously, those babies are being castrated without mm. anesthesia. Absolutely. I don't know if it happens in front of them. moms mm. or not. Either no, way, yeah. either way, it's it's an atrocity. It's evil. It's just amazing. Again, Utah Attorney General is defending this company that sexually like mutilates millions of of like baby boys, and yeah. and the and the mothers, I mean, are forcibly impregnated. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's just like it's just such. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to take it away from you, Paul, but it's just, it's just such this gross violation of, like, the body, of, yeah, of just, is. of, like, any, any body, of just this physical... Like, I mean, our bodies are just so miraculous. They're just so, like, beautiful, and, like, it's just... It's just to... to for Smithfield and these other companies to do what they do, is just... It's such this gross, deep... Inhumane violation of what it means to be a living being who li- exists with other living beings. Yeah.
0: Now the screams are, are pretty anyway. disturbing. Were you there yeah. that night? I don't know. What, what? I feel like. I feel like the night where when we went in, and it was so loud mm-hmm. that we could not hear each other. Yeah. Was, yeah. I think Sam yeah. was going in. I don't remember what roles you were taking. Do you remember that night?
1: I mean, I was always uh, operating the the camera. The,
0: that's right. Yes. Yeah, so I was you were, going so to you you were on.
1: Jelly squid, as we'd call it, I guess. Yeah, jelly, or, yeah.
0: jelly squid? I don't even remember. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we called it. <laughs> right. So right. jelly squid was our 360-degree our camera. It was yeah. a prototype camera that, you know, from what I understand, was worth potentially tens of thousands of dollars. It was mm-hmm. just, we call it jelly squid because it kind of looked like a squid. Well, I mean, it's it wires lost, coming lost, down. Lost. Yeah, yeah. I think we can describe it now because the company's you know yeah no longer well the tech is now yeah. like it's moved it's on it's everywhere yeah. I mean everybody's got mm-hmm. VR cameras but back it was, in day, it was cutting edge at the time remember we yeah. couldn't even use the term jelly squid right yeah And said like don't tell anyone about because they let us borrow their equipment this is for the record we're talking about this company called Condition One mm-hmm. I think Paul mentioned them earlier yeah they were actually very important to your development as an activist mm-hmm. but they just said. Yeah, you can use our cameras for your charge. I was like, yeah, for your charge, just take them. I was like, really? <laughs> You're gonna let us use these prototype cameras? But the one thing they didn't want us to do is don't let anyone see the camera, mm-hmm. you know, because this is a prototype. Yeah. And don't don't. They said we couldn't even describe it <laughs> because they were afraid if we described jelly squid, someone else would figure out. Oh, this is like how the camera could be constructed <laughs> in a way <laughs> that will because the, the key word thing about, itself. yeah, what they were doing at the time. I think there's a lot of other VR cameras that can do this now. Mm-hmm. But do do you remember what their big thing was? Stereoscopic. Basically vision. Yeah. So what they were trying to do is in in VR, at least back in 2017, I don't know if this is still true. Dean might actually be able to tell us because, Dean, I do any of you use VR? Do you play VR games or have an audio? No, not much. I don't do any VR other than our own investigation, so Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know. But back in 2017, VR was not stereoscopic, which means stereoscopic vision or stereoscopic video is video that shows real depth. Mm -hmm. So when you watch a movie, you can kind of tell it's a movie. It's a 2D... Flat screen, even IMAX that is a curved screen, you can still tell it's not real life because it's a, a video being projected onto a flat screen. And even VR back then, it was 360, but it was still flat. It just felt like you couldn't see depth. Like you could tell the difference between putting on a VR headset and walking around in a room. And what they did with this technology was stereoscopic. I'm just going to geek out a little bit because <laughs> I just think it's really cool that we're of yeah, this. Because they had, I won't even describe the technology because I don't understand it well enough, but they had enough lenses on the camera that it could replicate the human eye. This is yeah. why we have two eyes, right? You have two eyes because if you only have one eye, it's actually 2D, you know? But if you have two eyes, the two images that your eyes receive can integrate be compiled them. Yeah. by your brain into a, a visual image that shows you how far away something is. This is also get, gets messed up with glasses. People with glasses don't have great mm-hmm. depth perception, which is one of the reasons why you often see athletes, I Think I'm pretty sure about this, Someone who's like really interested in stereoscopic vision might correct me <laughs> on this, but I'm pretty sure glasses interfere stereoscopic vision. Not entirely. But when you wear glasses, you can't see depth as well. This is just my excuse for why I'm such a bad basketball. Uh, (laughs) Why can't shoot with shit? Because I I need to have an excuse. I
1: heard you're tenacious.
0: I am tenacious. Taj said that. I am tenacious. I run hard and I rebound. But I miss the ball and it hits me in the face. But um, so we had one of the first VR cameras, I think, in the entire industry Mm -hmm. that was stereoscopic vision. So when you put on our VR headset, and one of the cool things about our VR, and when we created this, and I had this experience myself, was when you're in the VR. It sometimes feels so real that you actually start moving around as if you can touch things. Like so many people told me that that scene when there's a mother pig in a gestation crate with the bar like slightly broken and that you can kind of reach if you wanted to because the bar is bent up. We don't even know exactly why it's bent up. You could reach over and touch her. So many people told me I put on the VR headset and I kept reaching over and trying to touch her. And the experience I had so many times was not from the, the Circle 4 VR but from the Norbest VR. Mm-hmm. Um, when that door closes, do you remember this in the beginning mm-hmm. when we're walking in? Mm-hmm. So we're walking in, Paul. I think you've got jelly squid because Paul was our jelly squid expert. You've got it set up the doorway. We open the door opens up, and you can see like in the background, there's all these turkeys and there's these activists walking in. You're like, oh my god, they're going in. What's going to be inside? And then the door swings closed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I swear to God, every <laughs> single time I watch this, yeah, like I just instinctively reach my hand out and I try to open it because because I'm, I'm annoyed. I'm like, Come on, what's going on? Open that door. And it's like, oh, wait, you know, this is not real. And, and that was the cool thing about our VR experience. And it's still, it's, it's now dated because technology has moved so fast. So, like, what we did in 2017 and 2018, even though it was, like, Sundance Film Festival, quality stuff now, like, four years later, I don't think it's that good. Because I've put on VR headsets more recently, and it's like, wow, that's really progressing. But Tech it was such a cool experience at the time. Yeah. And it's still a cool experience, even though the technology is a little worse. I'm going to warn you. Johnny. Ah, uh, okay. All right. I'm gonna warn you. I'm just gonna
2: try and like eat it away from the mic.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just gonna say, because we had we got a lot of feedback, um, and uh. the audience is gonna hear this, so you're you're gonna be accountable to this, John. Uh. John's picked up a cookie. Don't John has picked up a chocolate chip cookies. It's actually really my <laughs> fault because <laughs> I should not have provided so chocolate chip was cookies. Any remotely crunchy. That, is it fair to describe them as delicious? I would call it it's delicious. Quite, yeah. It's very, it's, good. Right. it's so very the, good. Delicious, I gave them delicious chocolate chip cookies but just eat the cookie away from the white because otherwise right. we're going to get a lot of very stealthy chore. All right, thank you. Stealthy chewing. Dennis, um, I don't even know. I, oh, I just, we were talking about what you see what, when yeah, you walk you in. Yeah, what you saw when you first walked in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, like I said. Right. Let's go back to Paul. Like, yeah, I mean, first
1: you, you, get, you just get the scope and you're just like, yeah. okay, oh my God, like, this is um, you know, individuals for as far as the eye can see. They're all stressed. They're all freaking out. You can see them chewing on the bars, of course, like from a distance. And you, you look down and I'm white. And uh, if you look at a pig's eye zoomed in like pigs who are these mothers who are on this factory farm like you zoom in and you just just only look at their eye like it reminds me of my grandpa you know Mm -hmm. you see like this Mm. this like light colored eye and this like pink skin around it a little bit wrinkly
0: what color are their eyes i actually don't even know like bluish yeah so
1: um but yeah you're just so it's like instantly you're just like okay that's that's just somebody right there laying in their own piss and shit and um just everyone's just flipping out and feeding off each other's energy And then, you know, as somebody who's there to document the conditions, um, like,
0: can I I ask you a question? Why your grandpa?
1: Um, just, I mean, that's just like, uh, that's just who I thought of, honestly, when I looked down, you know, um, yeah, he's, he was a a very fit, um, dude and whatever. But, uh, yeah, like it's something about like the eye, the eye itself Mm. just reminded me of him in the moment. They um, do have very human-like eyes. Yeah, yeah, they do.
0: Go, go, Google even pig eyes or pig face and look Mm -hmm. at them. They do have. Yeah, all
1: all of us species are. We're always like more similar than we are different. You know, for the most part, but. But yeah, then you just sort of um, start, you go in work mode, hopefully. Because, like, really, you're there for a reason. You just want to expose, like, what is there. You want to show what's happening. And uh, it's just, so you're you're looking around. You're like, you know, okay, so everybody's got your typical superficial wounds. You know, they've all got scratches on their backs so or they're filthy or their conditions are rough. And you're, you're trying to document that. And, um, like, when the industry is always like, oh, you're just showing the worst of the worst. Well, like, well of course we're going to show, like, examples of injuries that are not being addressed. Best, those kind of mm-hmm, things, mm-hmm. but you're also, you know, look around like nobody's nobody's looking happy to be here, yeah. no one's looking anything less than in misery.
0: What were some of the things you specifically remember seeing? Uh, I mean, Is just there anything that like really left a mark in you?
1: Honestly, it's when you see ones who. So, I looked down the first eye I made eye contact with, reminded me of my grandpa, you know, mm-hmm. and that's one thing, and then but then sometimes you look down, and you see somebody. And you feel like they 're not there like they've they 've sort of crossed over some sort of a sanity threshold as somebody yeah. who 's been in this situation, like you know maybe the the mom who reminded me of my grandpa maybe she 's on her first cycle, mm-hmm. yet um, this other one who just looks completely removed from herself you know like how many how many times has she been put in that? Uh, you know not taken from the gestation into the farrowing facility and then had her babies for 12 to 19 days Whatever the case is mm-hmm. and then suddenly her babies are just gone one day. Oh, they, over they disappeared and, over over and, and over Yeah, again. and she's back in the gestation, and, you know, or maybe she's in the in the pens until they, they impregnate her um, but Yeah. So those ones like really jump out. And of course, just like, you know, you see just the the bigger open wounds and um, just always the conditions in general. It's like, wow, like you're, you're spending your whole life. Like what you do is you chew on metal bars painted blue until it gets down to the metal. And that's how you exist. You couldn't turn around if you wanted to. You know, you were just like you're designed to not be able to turn around, just sit there with your face facing this direction, your excrement, your piss. It's all around it's you. You're laying on you're laying on concrete, mm-hmm. you know, like um, you're just on concrete. Like you don't know what grass is. You don't know what hay is or anything like that. You only know concrete your whole life or metal bars, you know, like when you're in the ferroaring facility, you're going to be on like metal grading for the most part. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, like this is just just bizarre to be in a factory. So I've like, I talked about working on, in small farms as a roofer we also did industrial work too and you're just in like a big factory machinery everywhere and so now I'm like in a factory but instead of things being made of metal it's flesh it's like individuals animals animals They are the gears of the machine. They are cranking out little babies that the industry is like, doesn't really hide. They're just like, yeah, this is like a bacon factory for us. Mm-hmm. But instead of moving parts and, and putting in you know plant-based ingredients to produce you know something, it's like you're, you're literally just forcing mm-hmm. somebody to be pregnant. Um, you understand that 10% of the babies are going to either die or you're going to pick them up by their hind legs and use blunt force trauma to... 20%. Quote, 20%, sorry. That's what the yeah. industry
0: numbers say. Yeah.
1: yeah. This yeah. is their numbers, not ours. Yeah. So it's just complete... Yeah objectification of individuals, you know, who experience joy and sadness and terror and all these things. Yeah. And we know that about their psychology and, and we just treat them like objects, you know? Yeah.
0: I should actually correct myself because I, I hear Crystal Heath's vo- voice in my head right now uh-huh. and say, don't say 20% when it's 18%. I think the numbers okay. are between, uh, Yeah, It's like, I think yeah. it gets 18 to mm-hmm. 19, but I don't think... Poor Chekhov used to actually mm-hmm. have a statistic. I'm, you're you're just, filling up yeah. dumpsters on a weekly basis. Yeah, for sure, because mm-hmm. 18% basis, yeah. of... Mm-hmm. I think it's 150 million pigs. Yeah. That's, you know, 20, 30 million animals every year that are, are being killed, you know, in the first few weeks of their life because they're just too weak or they get sick mm-hmm. or, or frankly, they just happen to be small genetically. You know, I don't know if it's bad or good luck. Cause I mean, in many ways I'd probably rather continu- get out yeah, of here. Yeah. There, I mean, a yeah. lot of us probably would choose like instead of living in that, that hellhole, you know, to just let's, let's end it earlier. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What about you, John? What are Yeah, no, Paul, rumors? you described it really well. I mean, I remember the thing that hit me first was just the smell, just how like, how just thick and, and strong and overpowering it is. And I, yeah, I remember just seeing all, all these pigs eating their own excrement, like drinking their own urine mm-hmm. and, you know, just like how bad does their mental state have to be where that's, yeah. where that's normal. And and yeah, I mean, I think it's all...
0: It's of- in the natural behavior for almost all animals because it's dangerous.
2: Right, yeah.
0: Teach your own excrement.
2: Yeah, exactly. It has
0: no nutritional value or almost no nutritional value with some exceptions. I mean, you have like animals like rabbits that have evolved to eat their own pellets but it's a very different process for those ruminant animals
2: right and i think actually primates sometimes get don't they get b12 actually from eating hexamerate because like mm-hmm. the b12 gets produced Thank by you for
0: contradicting my point and yours uh, yeah <laughs> 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 well talking no about i how mean awful it's... this is and
2: saying like no actually it's a great thing because <laughs> rabbits in, do it well no it. i mean it, but in this particular circumstance sure. yeah, where it it's happening all the time yeah. and where in it's an unnatural no... way yeah it's totally unnatural. Hmm. And I mean, all of us, I think a lot of us anyway, have had an experience of claustrophobia where we're just like momentarily immobilized, you know, maybe it's, you know, maybe we're kids and we're getting crushed under pillows or something when we're playing or, or you know, we just have these experiences where we're just, we're trapped temporarily and where we just get that like sense of panic and just imagining that that is what these beings are experiencing for their entire lives. Yeah. It, it, it's just like, it's just so horrifying. And you see, like, when they're right in front of you, you can see that that's what they're experiencing. It's, like, the worst possible thing I've ever felt in my life, which I only experienced for a very brief amount of time, is, like, what they're feeling for their entire lives. It's just unbelievable. And all of us, like, we just, we, like, I talked before about being a parent and not getting sleep. Like, I cherish sleep. Like, Mm -hmm. I cherish being in a comfortable environment, being in a bed, being, having a pillow and blankets and like Paul said, they 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 just that. have concrete underneath themselves. They can't even like roll over onto their, onto their side. And again, that's yeah. their whole life. Like they never, they never get to actually have rest. Yeah. They never actually get to feel comfortable in their own bodies. I don't know. I it, it just, it I, I wish I had more opportunities to talk with people who have like, who are in the industry and who think that this is okay. Cause it just boggles my fucking mind mm-hmm. that people actually support this, that people think that this is okay. It was, you know, and it reminds me when, after we took the plea deal, uh, I think it was Patty Goff from Smithfield mm-hmm. delivered the victim impact statement, and she sounded all sad and all oh, these people. You know, I, I, look, this is a statement they make during your plea bargain, right?
0: Where they talk about show how bad, how you horrible are you are, young. how you've destroyed their you lives. And by the way, so I'm, much.
2: i you know, I, I don't hate Patty Goff as a person, and sure. I, I I feel I try to cultivate agape love for everybody. I mean, I think that there is a better world out there for all of us. I do believe that there's there's going to be some kind of heaven. I don't know if it's a in an astral heaven, or if we can create just a heaven on Earth, but I Maybe I gave me a lot of trouble, friend. What's I just that? made
0: a blog post about religion, and it was probably my most hated blog post I've ever. Really? Heard. Oh, I'll, I'll <laughs> read people it. People got so mad when I wrote about religion in a positive way. <laughs> that's there are a lot hilarious. of very militant atheists out there.
2: That's I'm just great. Kidding. You should say whatever you believe. That's fine. That's, that's part of the I, podcast.
0: I, sharing views from
2: different. I've definitely been. I've definitely been gone through periods of atheism, and I totally understand why people are atheist. I have, yeah. you know, at this stage in my life, I do think that there is a non-material aspect of reality is you and mm-hmm. I talked about um, at one point but you know I'm down to talk to anyone yeah. I'm down to talk Sorry to I eight- totally interrupted that's okay you. yeah no it's no that's no, fine neither I, mean, I, that. I mean i think that there's actually a pretty big spiritual component to all this from everyone's side you know because there are a lot of religious people who use or who think religion justifies what we do to non-human yeah. animals and then there are people like me, who think that spirituality says the exact opposite, that we should be loving all these other beings and seeing them as us, just like yeah. we, see, we should see, strive to see other human beings as us. Anyway, all that's to say, I don't, yeah. I don't, it, it, I, I'm not trying to attack Patty Goff as a human being, but it was very interesting when she, she made the comment, like, we really care about our animals and we treat them well. And that, always, that stuck out to me. And I always I try to take people at their word. I try to there's, I, I try to follow the principle of charity, which is where we we try to believe that other people are telling us the truth unless we have clear evidence that that they're lying. And so I'll take her at her word that she actually believes that they do that, that, that she actually does care about the pigs and and that she, that she thinks Smithfield does a good job of of ensuring their their comfort. And, and their safety, and then I just have to realize that like there's just this profound delusion mm-hmm. that's going on and again, I don't think it, I'm not trying trying to attack people I don't think it's I, I think if if people think I'm delusional, I want them to tell me, right? Because mm-hmm, I, th- sure. I think that de- this world it induces delusion. This is an extremely confusing world, and there are institutions that lie to us all the time. So figuring out what's real and what's not is not always a trivial matter, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm speaking with in in a, I'm trying to speak in a spirit of love when I say I think that these people are just profoundly delusional, and I think that being in an exploitative uh, industry, um, whether it's whether it's this, whether it's like the animal exploitation industries, or whether it's like the timber industry where they feel like they're replanting the forest, you know, they and that they're actually, you know, being like, yeah. I don't know, it's, this we're doing is,
0: something good for the environment.
2: Well, yeah, and it's it's that's literally what they say. If you, um, there's this great documentary about the. Um, the the Green Scare um, and the prosecution particularly of Daniel McGowan, mm. which happened in Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. Um, he was sentenced if by... If a tree falls, right? If a tree falls, yeah. He was actually sentenced by Ann Aiken.
0: You know, I've hung out with Marshall Curry.
2: Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, you, yeah, I You probably with told him, me about that. I hung out with him in New York. Um, He's a great guy. Yeah, great doc... He's a
0: super animal rights person, too. Yeah, great he doc... likes to do animal rights stuff.
2: Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Great documentary, but they, they interview, I think, Steve Swanson... Who was the owner of the timber of Superior Lumber, which got torched to the ground, and and he actually called himself by the activists, well, by the activists, okay. but yeah, just by an accident, no? right? Yeah, yeah, it was an it was an arson. Yeah, um, and
0: he actually, which, called, for the record, I'm going to speak for on your behalf, either of you, but I don't support, and as a general sure. matter, you know, DXC does not engage in property destruction. We don't. We absolutely
2: don't. Yeah. Um, but they, they interviewed Steve and he called himself an environmentalist. He said, I am a steward for the earth. And again, it's like, it's just this delusion. It's because like to him, like he doesn't have the motivation to understand how, like when you not, when you destroy like old growth, like you're not just taking the trees, like you're destroying everything underneath. You're just, you're destroying like the mycelium networks that have like evolved for, for like hundreds or even thousands of years and like and you've got all this like rich biodiversity you've got all these homes for all these animals that go away and like you you plant new trees but they don't it's not it's like a single species it's not this ecosystem that like actually evolved to care for itself and to and to provide this source of life and abundance for all these others uh, other things but and so it's like there's just there's this, like, not recognizing this is just delusion. And similarly, you're Patty Goff, and you don't, it's like you're shielded from realizing the reality of what these individuals experience. And it becomes, and, and like, this delusion also becomes this like strategy becomes this like marketing strategy. And you try and like bring other people into your delusion so that they want to buy your product. And amazingly, it's been, I mean, it's been very Very effective because nobody even hardly anybody in our society thinks about what these non-human animals go through. There are billions of them, you know, we're out here, it's beautiful, it's sunny. And like, we think that this is the reality, but for most sentient beings, it's not the reality, like they're, living in, they're living in these terrifying sheds where there are these be- other powerful beings who torment them all the time and where they're under this self-imposed death sen- or this externally imposed death sentence that's totally not justified. Do you remember Andy
0: Greenberg's line from Wired about the average experience of, a, of an animal on this planet? Huh, no, what was that? Probably the best line I've ever read about animal rights. This is by a journalist at Wired magazine. Really great guy. He actually usually writes about national security issues and hacking, and you know people are trying to basically either cover up national security secrets or break into government installations and secure national security information that then they disseminate to the public. People like, um, well, like Edward Snowden, you know. Uh, But Andy Greenberg's line from the Wired article is, "The average lived experience of an animal on this planet, or the the average experience." Mm -hmm on this planet is an animal living in a cage hmm. Hmm. and wow. I've never heard that before wow. until I read that article Wow. pretty sure that's in the article I'm surprised you said hmm that's making yeah, me think no, it's I, not in the article yeah. cause no, cause no, I'm sure that, you that read it because there's a, oh, yeah, a photograph uh, of you in amazing. the article so I know you read
1: it I love that
2: article yeah but
0: I, think, I think that's a line from his article mm. that well, the average experience on this earth is an animal living in a cage
2: well I don't think well, that would necessarily I don't think that could be true for an off. animal but it could be true for maybe a mammal vertebrate animal okay vertebrate animal right yeah because there are like so, trillions of ants and...
0: For sure. Whatnot. Not, not but, insects. Yeah. And actually, if you consider aquatic animal... You know, the, the, the correct version of that is even worse, though. Yeah. You, you know where I'm going with this.
2: I think so. Well, just the... Yeah.
0: Wait. I'm making strange hand gestures that neither of <laughs> you said <laughs> okay. i thought I I thought I knew, <laughs> but now this? I'm lost. <laughs> what is this, John? Uh, the bristle-mouthed fish? The, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so It's the average, li- the, the average lived experience of an animal on this planet today is slowly suffocating to death Yeah, as the food around you and all the life around you is dying. Yeah. Because the the most numerous individual vertebrate animal, and actually it's not accurate either because that's not considering insects, which are, and there's some debate about insect sentience. I think most of us are probably on the same page and that we think that there's good evidence that insects are sentient and therefore deserve you know, some basic rights and shouldn't smash or harm them. But even if you don't consider insects, or if you do, don't consider insects, the bristle fish is clearly a vertebrate animal. There is overwhelming, overwhelming yeah. evidence. These are animals that have social bonds. That they can distinguish between different individuals in their um, school. Um, and the bristle fish is the most numerous individual animal on the face of this planet Earth, probably by a few orders of magnitude. Estimates are between hundreds of quadrillions, uh, maybe hundreds of trillions. And they, they've seen decreases about 60% in the population, I think in the last decade, lots mm-hmm. of studies showing mm-hmm. this. And honestly, one of the scary things is the reason they know this is because they keep trawling all these deep sea fish mm-hmm. to capture tuna or whatever it is. And it used to be the case, they, they were like, the reason they figured out, wow, there's like a huge number of these animals and the, is because they kept trawling and there'd be like mm-hmm. huge numbers of dristlemouth fish. And we killed a lot of them through trawling. But the main reason they're dying today is because climate change is mm-hmm. preventing the waters of the ocean from mixing because mm-hmm. the water's hot at the top. I've mm-hmm. said right. this before, but the water stays too hot. Hot water doesn't sink. And if the water doesn't sink, oxygen doesn't get to the mid or deep sea yes. levels. 68. And so all these animals are slowly dying of oxygen stress. It's deoxygenation of oceans. Climate activists, environmentalists, animal rights people should be talking about deoxygenation more because the suffocation of hundreds of trillions or hundreds of quadrillions, potentially, of animals is probably the average experience of a vertebrate animal on this planet slowly suffocating to death. So there's some fish,
2: they're vertebrae? They're Animals? vertebrae.
0: Okay. All fish are vertebrates. Oh, okay. Yeah. They all have a central nervous system, a spinal cord. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and so there's no doubt. I don't think there's any, any reasonable cognitive scientist. <laughs> <Every>
2: <laughs> our, favorite, say, our favorite every term. Every time I say
0: this no. the term cognitive scientist of John, I laugh because John has like made fun of me for describing myself as a cognitive scientist. <laughs> Which I still think is fair, because cognitive science includes behavioral science, and I was a behavioral econ- economics scholar at Northwestern, so maybe I should have said former Paul, cognitive Paul's scientist. Paul's kind of like doing the... Paul's like, maybe, maybe the not. Head, I shouldn't the have said cognitive yeah. scientist. I should have said um, all ethologists, neuroscientists who study the issue. There are some debates about insects, but you know the Cambridge Consensus on Animal Consciousness, which is you know like 95 plus percent consensus of all these scientists, and yes, all vertebrates clearly have consciousness that is qualitatively the same as a human beings. You know, they experience pe- mm. fear and pain and pleasure and joy and all these things that you go through, these experiences in life that make our lives meaningful. Like if you don't have emotions, there's actually been, Albert Sachs did a great study of this, or at least he wrote about it in one of his books. Albert Sacks is a neuroscientist who wrote these people who like had these terrible injuries. It's possible that they actually had um, lobotomies too. I don't remember whether it was an injury or a lobotomy, but they don't have the capacity to feel emotion and their lives are completely empty. They can't make any decisions. They just like wander around aimlessly. They go into the grocery store and they can't even decide what to eat and they don't eat. They like, we'll starve to death. Because without emotions, you have no motivation. Without motivation, you do nothing. Like, you Mm -hmm. don't have any feeling at all. And um, yeah, and we know that all animals feel. Right. Right. So, why aren't we giving them rights? Well, you're getting super late. And I know, Paul, you got to go soon. No, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure we talk about what's actually happening right now. That's all good. Yeah. Did, did any of you want to share anything that you didn't get to share about those early experiences? We didn't actually talk about... We, we mentioned it obliquely, but the, the, the breastfeeding thing. Mm. I know that's really influenced you a lot. Yeah. Do you want to describe it? Because like, you saw them oh, firsthand, right? right? What, yeah. What, what was happening to the moms? All
2: these moms had like these like torn nipples. Yeah. That was something else that we discovered at, when we actually went inside of, of Smithfield. So yeah. Which is like... Yeah, I mean just to ima- like that's it's like such an incredibly like n- like sensitive area like we mm-hmm. have so many nerves like in our in our nipples and so you just have to imagine how much like physical discomfort that causes and of course no, it never they're like they're never getting treated for it. It's just like this pain that never goes away that they always have, and that, and it doesn't even like I I don't know I don't know exactly what the subjective experience of the the mother cow is, but it can't be good. And then it, it's also always getting stimulated yeah. because the babies are so desperate mm-hmm. and they're just trying to chomp at it as much as possible. So that because they're starving, and that's the other thing like being a parent like. Our child, our, our our baby girl, like when she gets hungry, she just screams, mm-hmm. you know. And like hunger for the for babies is just so, so uncomfortable. Yeah. And those piglets, like they die from that yeah, hunger all yeah. the time.
0: Lily was dying from that. Yeah, because of injured foot. Lily was one of the two piglets we rescued. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, you just imagine that's that. It's just the exact opposite of what the mother-child relationship should be. Like they should yeah. be somewhere like comfortable, somewhere safe, where like the babies to are, are not in a position where they have to like fight for each other, where they all can get enough milk that they need. I mean, and this is like the exact opposite.
0: It, and, and can I just comment yeah. and say, I think your description of a torn nipple is, a, is an understatement. Mm. Cause it's not just a cut or a tear. Yeah, They're the shriveled up. Yeah. I mean, these are shredded mm. nipples Yeah, that look like some sort of vampire octopus with all its tentacles. Yeah. And it's because the babies have to keep coming back and coming back and desperately get whatever they can get.
1: They mm-hmm. seem to favor it almost, maybe because of the salty blood or yeah, something, but you see a lot of piglets who do have the blood yeah. on their snoot. And,
0: and we, s- we saw the moms like jerking in response. Yeah, yeah. It was clearly yeah. incredibly painful because every time the babies would touch God. them. And what you know, we it's, talked it's about awful. so it's
1: far, pretty, too, was, yeah. was in the gestation facility, um, but like we didn't really touch on the farrowing. Yeah. Farrowing, for anybody that doesn't know, that, that's where um, the, the moms do. go when they're about to deliver. Um, although of course we did see deliveries that happened in the gestation where the mom gave birth ahead of time no, and that's sure. just like ter- terrible to think about because they're not safe. Like they're, they're, those babies are going to, I mean, they're all going to die, but those yeah. babies are going to re- really be in a bad spot. Um, but yeah, in farrowing in general, I mean, you see commonly like this, like I, you know, the animals are bred strategically over decades to have the exact perfect number of babies to make the most profit. Um, yeah. and Uh, and sometimes there's more or less, whatever, but you see like, okay, there's, there's a pile, there's like a placenta covered in shit. And there are six dead babies in there, you know, and maybe that no one's moving. Maybe there's a little bit of movement. Um, you know, you, you see a lot of the babies that are just the typical size that are on the nipples or trying to get to that, whatever. And then you look over and you see a runt who's dazed and confused. You know, they're, they're, they're probably haven't gotten much food because of the competition. Um, they're probably going to be thumped the next time someone goes through, um, and, Explain what that means. Um, like thumping would be at, at probably the number one cause of death on the facility. Like some die on their own, but I, you know, f- from my understanding, I mean, like most of the, these sized operations, the typical policy is that if you see somebody who's a runt and you know they're, they're not making it to the mom as much, then like what you're order to do by virtue of like quote unquote animal welfare is to put them out of their misery by grabbing their back legs and, and swing and and crack their skull blunt force trauma onto the grating or the concrete. And uh, you'll see individuals that that's happened to. and, And you can tell that they're still kicking around a little bit, whatever, like anytime, you know, you see a dumpster full of piglets, uh, somebody in there is still alive. Right. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a matter of finding them. You know, our friends recently no. in Iowa came across a little, little fellow named Charlie <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and he, he, people threw for 48, 72 hours, maybe I think. Yeah. And he's, he's still passed. Super but,
0: messed up in the freezing cold. Yeah. It yeah. Like it, this is Iowa, in Iowa middle winter. Middle yeah. winter. There's a dead pile of dozens of piglets. Yeah. It's like even just reading about that. I, I told Marina, the journalist who wrote that story, I couldn't even read that story because mm-hmm. the way she describes it and puts you in that place. I mean, go read it. What's what's the title of the article? Do you remember? I forget. Why the, the title. animal rights movement needs direct action or something like that. something like that. Something like it's in Current Affairs by Marina Balatnikova. Balatnikova.
2: Balatnikova. I think Balatnikova. I am. So She's embarrassed awesome. She's such an that I can't journalist. pronounce her last
0: name, given the number of times I've hung out with her and talked to her. I should be able to pronounce her last name, but it's a great piece. Yeah, but the. It's, it's hard to read because she vividly you know, yeah. puts you in that position. And we put up a video about this, too. DXC has this on their Facebook page. Just like seeing that little baby moving around. And this is a baby that not only was freezing to death, but had a broken jaw. And my guess is the reason she had a broken jaw was she was thumped, and they just didn't yeah. do it properly. They thumped her yeah. on the jaw instead of the head. So, and know, so it, our it, people found her squirming in, mm-hmm. in the middle of a dead pile with dozens of other dead piglets around her, slowly freezing to death.
1: Another thing you see too is um, babies who get injured by their mom. Like, of course you didn't mean to, but you'll see someone who, you know, is just under their mom, their back legs are sticking out, they've been crushed, or you'll see somebody who got crushed the other way. Maybe their back legs aren't working and they're sort of pulling along. You'll see some individuals like, you know, the industry would say that this shouldn't be able to happen, but it does, where their foot gets caught in a grate somewhere, um, they're trapped. And, um, yeah, you just, it's, it's just terrible, you know, it's just, it's just such a, it's just not good to go to any of these companies, YouTube's accounts and they they have videos that are very clean yeah. and very well lit. And it's just like, Hey, this is what it looks like in here. And then I tell you what, go, go into these places sometime and see if what you see when they, when the cameras aren't there for them, that's why I would just love to see transparency sometime yeah. as a, yeah. as a first step. I would love it if these places would say, Hey, you know what? Um, DXC, like yeah, we, we feel confident in our operations. So we'll give you what we'll call the transparency challenge. Yeah. You can show up three times a year unannounced. We'll put you through the biosecurity protocols. You can go in, you can film, show everything you want. No commentary, no editing, just a nice live stream and let people decide for themselves. They would never agree to that yeah. because what they put out there is not what is happening on a day-to-day basis. I've worked in food service before and I know when you get the call from your 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 store down the road. If you're working in a chain, and they're like, "Hey, the inspector's coming," and, and you you hustle, you start cleaning as best you can, and you barely pass. Um, like, yeah. And and compare that to what your company shows, you know, for their social media or something like that. It's two different things. So yeah, basically, these places are just putting cool. out these very curated images of what's happening at their places. They're putting out these curated narratives about taking care of animals. Anybody in there? Anybody that has has the ability to see, hear, smell you walk into these places and and you're going to see the same yeah. things we saw and yeah, yeah. and you're not going to feel good about it and regardless of what you think about anybody's diet or anything like that you're going to you're going to come to the conclusion like hey this is messed up this is not this is not something when people appeal to indigenous activities of like hunting and mm-hmm. things like that this is nothing natural this is not this is not typical animal behavior this is you know essentially capitalism i think is the is the main thing it's like there's somebody's got to make the most profit possible that they can and that, that means take these animals and squeeze every drop of profit that you can out of them by maximizing everything, getting as many in a small space, yeah. um, you know, fattening them up to the right size to ship them off from Utah all the way to the West Coast where they go to Farmer John Slaughterhouse. Um, they get hung upside down by their back ankles, uh, get their throats slit, go in the gas chambers, die on the way there the whole system it's just it's just yeah. completely terrible and it's not to say that so many other systems aren't terrible if if some people are really just not accepting what's happening in there i'm also not accepting what's happening on some of like some fast fashion or something like that or sure. i'm buying tangerines that who knows how the workers were treated i mean they're probably terribly yeah so it's it's really it's not just limited to what animals go through that's it's one one really really example that stands out i think a lot yeah. and, and it's a good place to start looking and, and thinking about how can we change
0: yeah and we can't go into this story in too much detail because we should get close soon given that we're close to six and i know paul's got to get on his way but it is worth pointing out that circle four the same place where they're holding captive and torturing and have tortured hundreds of thousands of animals is also a facility that has been caught up in human trafficking like yeah. Human, I, I shouldn't say trafficking, it's slavery. Yeah, slavery. I mean, yeah. it, it mm-hmm. was slavery where they had basically shipped people in from Asia, were forcing them under threat to work with no compensation. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I will people, say,
1: Circle Four, um, I, it's it's it contractor. was they hired a contractor, yeah, a contractor so just, they, they, that's, that's they maintained that they didn't know that those were slaves,
0: yeah. Which it's like if there's a slave working a company, you, you should know that, you know, you should know that. But it's oh, not no, surprising sorry. that a company like Circle Four and Smithfield, that had shown. So little interest in the welfare of animals is also not at all interested in the welfare of human beings. I think what you said, though, is a good segue into where I think the one subject we have to talk about, which is kind of what's going on right now, which is an effort to gag us. Yeah. And I just want to back it up a little bit and say, this is not the first time anyone has been gagged in the animal rights movement, or just in the public in Utah. We already mentioned the ag gag laws. It's one of the reasons that I probably came to both of you and said, this is an important investigation because Utah is one of the state's where they have an ag-gag law. And in fact, one of our friends, Amy Meyer, was the first person prosecuted on this ag-gag law for merely standing on a public sidewalk, taking some photos and videos. And because these laws, which are fundamental violation of the First Amendment, I mean, the first of our Utah's has rights, been struck down as unconstitutional. Yes, it yeah. has been struck down since then. Yeah. Um, and it was struck down, I think, a few weeks after our investigation was mm-hmm. published in the New York Times. I'd like to think that investigation had some role in the judge's opinion, I would be shocked if the judge did not hear anything about our investigation because there mm-hmm. was a lot of news around it. It was in the New York Times and yeah. the judge was writing about animal agriculture and he wrote in a very powerful, positive way. And this is a Republican judge, mm-hmm. a federal judge in Utah struck this law down. But there was that effort which was passed in 2012 or so in Utah which criminalized the act of taking a photograph and it caused all the traditional nonprofit organizations to flee Utah and other states because they lose their nonprofit status. They could be charged and criminally prosecuted. So they all stopped doing these investigations. And unfortunately, All the states that had the most abusive and vast systems of animal exploitation were the states passing the aggregate laws. Iowa, North Carolina, Utah, and so on. So that was one cover-up. The second cover-up, which in many ways is even more important now because there's active litigation on this issue, there are ballot initiatives being passed across the country, is gestation crates. So this is a company that because of public pressure and because people like Ian Duncan, the renowned animal welfare scientist, said the gestation crates, these crates we've been describing. And actually, I think we actually physically describe the gestation crate and I'll just do it real quick. Yeah. So mother pig, for those of you who don't know, can be up to 800 pounds at a typical factory farm to probably anywhere between 500 and 800 pounds. Massive animal. Mm-hmm. Think of the largest human being you've ever seen times three. Yeah. You know, maybe times four. Right? Um, and you were talking earlier about the poor calf that lives in a six by six box. Yeah. You know, this is a 150 to 200 pound animal. Six yeah. by six box is a terrible life. Yeah. A mother pig gets two by seven. Yeah. Much less space. That's 14 square feet. Right? Six by six is 36. So the mother pig is getting, you know, one half, one third the space. And she is three to four times larger. And that's her entire life. You know, the baby cow eventually is probably going to a feedlot where they get some space, but mother pigs are trapped in a two by seven foot metal box. It's, like a, it's almost like a tomb. I, I like to think of it as like almost a living grave because even the way it's shaped, there are these tendrils that kind of surround the pig, especially in a farrowing crate, that prevent them from turning around. And then, as you said, the ground is concrete. So because this is such an awful lived experience, and, and I want to just also point out, this didn't actually exist until the 1960s and 70s. For all the mm-hmm. people who say like, oh, this is a traditional way of life. This is the way we've lived our life for generations. How dare you attack our way of life? This is not a way of life. This is something large corporations invented mm-hmm. to minimize the amount of labor they needed, right? Because you have for every one of these clusters, you know, Paul is talking about the, the satellite map, which I really encourage everyone to go look at right now. I mean, mm-hmm. just write off this podcast, just Google Milford, Utah, yeah. and then go a little southwest of Milford or go west of Beaver, Utah, and you'll see, you know, out in the desert, which they built it there because they knew anytime anyone saw this stuff, they'd be like, what the hell is this? This is creepy and seems wrong. All these clusters of barns. Each Of those clusters of barns that might have thousands of animals in it is run by usually one person, right? So, I think there's around 80 clusters of barns covering the 120,000 animals at Circle Farm, which is, you know, as far as we could tell, the largest pig farm in the nation, maybe the world. And all these thousands or hundreds of animals are being managed by a single employee, and it's partly because they've industrialized the process. They have these cages where each of the animals can find a little cage, they can't move, so you don't have to worry about them mm-hmm. moving somewhere you don't want. They have an automated feeding system, an automated cleaning system, an automated water system. It's all automated. It's all factoring. factory. And because the conditions are so awful, and because people like Ian Duncan described this, and I'll, I might get the quote slightly incorrect, but this is roughly accurate. Ian Duncan, who, who is an animal welfare scientist, he's actually, I think, through most of his career, worked for the industry and worked mm-hmm. for pig farmers and swine farmers. But he called gestation crates the coolest form of confinement that mankind has ever devised. The coolest mm-hmm. form of confinement, mm-hmm. worse than the torture devices they invented in the Middle Ages, like these locks and all the terrible things. Just the coolest form of confinement, and even people like Temple Grand, another animal for scientist, who I mean, you know, she hasn't even really been with us in a lot of issues. She disagrees with animal rights activists all the time. Mm-hmm. Probably the most famous slaughterhouse consultant in the world. Even she says these crates are bad. They yeah. got to go. Right. Everybody says they're bad. So back in two thousand six, because of the public outcry, there were a number of investigations, Sifield made a promise and said within ten years. You will phase out gestation crates. And part of the reason we did this investigation in an ag-gag state where no other organizations were going to do it is because we saw, you know, just from satellite images, you could just watch on Google Maps because Google Maps will periodically update their images. Mm -hmm. There was nothing changing. No. This is supposedly a multi-hundred million dollar investment FIFIL is making across the entire country to phase out gestation crates, eliminate the cruelest form of confinement that humankind has ever invented. And there was nothing happening at this facility. And there was nothing happening in other facilities because right after this investigation, we went to North Carolina and did the same thing and found rows and rows of gestation crates. And still to this day, I think this is accurate. Still to this day, I have never seen a single pig having visited dozens of sites where pigs are being raised by Smithfield Foods. I have yet to see a single pig in group housing raised outside of one of these crates, right? This is a lie to the public. This is stealing money from the public because the public's paying a lot of money because they think, you know, what you were saying earlier, that this delusion, or mm-hmm. I, I think you were saying this, that they had this delusional view. Um, in the case of the ordinary consumer, Patty Goff is a totally different story because she's probably inside this facilities. And I will say, well, part of this is delusion. Part of this is absolutely an intentional lie. Because oh, yeah, you could say, totally. you could say, okay, we care about the animals. And that's, you know, hard to prove. It's like very subjective saying there are no more gestation crates. That is a very specific factual claim that we prove false. And it's one of the reasons that there's now litigation. The Humane Society is suing Smithfield Foods Mm -hmm. because they know they've been lying to the public for the past five years. Frankly, they've been lying for the last 15 years because ever since they made that promise, I bet they never intended to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. But That's a result of corporations that are just focused on maximizing profits. So that was the second cover-up. the cover-up of gestation crates, which you know we exposed, and Smithfield had to respond, and, and they're still using crates, and there are a lot of states that have banned gestation crates, including California, and there's litigation now that, unfortunately, is being reviewed by the Supreme Court about whether California's gestation crate ban will hold up, right, because complicated legal issue, but it has to do with the Interstate Commerce Clause and whether states are allowed to regulate things that affect interstate commerce, which is complete nonsense and stupid, but unfortunately, the Supreme Court is very sympathetic to corporations right now. But the third cover-up is obviously what's happening in this trial. Setting aside whether activists can publish these investigations, setting aside whether uh, ordinary consumers have a right to know whether they're being lied to about gestation crates. In our case right now, it's not only that the public doesn't get to know and that activists don't get to know. It's that we are not even allowed to speak about our own experience and motive yeah. in this case. Because yeah. a, a, a state court judge has ruled now that the defense, meaning you and I and yeah. our attorneys, cannot speak to the conditions we saw in this farm and cannot even speak about our motive, yeah. right? But the prosecution is not being restricted in this way. They can have their right. witnesses testify and they can speak in the opening statement, the closing statement about our motive and our, they can say, and they've already said all these things. Like literally the report that was filed by the FBI when this investigation commenced is animal enterprise terrorism. They say our motive was to terrorize. Folks, all we did was we took some photos and we took a dying baby pig to the vet. In in this courtroom that's going to unfold in September, and that we just got the appeal ruling today, yes. just a few hours ago. So it's still a little raw for everybody on this table right now, yeah. especially John. I think John's actually the most effective. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah. It's still a little rough. But we're being told now, despite the fact that they have accused us of terrorism, saying our motive is to terrorize people. We cannot defend ourselves and say what our motive actually was, which was to expose misconduct and abuse and criminal behavior and to help dying and sick baby animals. So that's kind of where we are. Yeah. How are you feeling, Paul? They you can't even
1: show the video. That's interesting to me. I like so there's a video that exists of yeah. you, Wayne. Carrying somebody out of a facility, committing and, the crime, and this is yeah. I put that in quotes. There's air quotes. Yeah, I, I did air quotes. I didn't. Yeah. I don't
0: actually think I committed a crime. But
1: and yeah, I'm you know I'm obviously not educated in uh, in law, um, but I just I, as a as a layperson, I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Like this person's accused of a crime. There's video of the act happening, and that video can't be shown in a court of law that just is like, I don't understand that. I, I, I hear the explanations of saying that it's, it doesn't matter or, um, but I don't think that's true at all. Like, I think that, you know, of course, if, if intent is a factor and, in any kind of, um, you know, instance, like a claim like this, then, then yeah, like intent matters, like show, show what happened. Like, let, let's see, like, you know, what you were trying to do. Um, what were you trying to show? And, yeah, it's just yeah. but it's sort of I take it with a grain of salt. It's a system, you know. Yeah. We we're not we're not WH Group, multinational um, company based in China that owns Smithfield mm-hmm. with the power to pick up a phone and have the FBI go searching for pigs across the country.
0: Yeah. Chinese um, government finance too. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like the Chinese government is effectively directing the FBI here to run around across multiple states, Colorado and Utah chasing after baby pigs and prosecuting Completely nonviolent animal rights act. Yes. Yeah. Next time, exposing someone, the abuses committed by their own employees in their own company.
1: If someone steals your car, pick up the phone and call the FBI. See if yeah, they'll see hop on they it.
0: Respond. But uh, and the car is a lot more valuable from a commercial perspective than yeah. these two baby pigs, who had no commercial value. No actually. commercial value at all. Like I said, what you, negative what, what
2: we did was actually not theft, and yeah. it was not theft like burglary, premised yeah. on theft. It wasn't. Because they didn't have commercial value. Yeah, which is a requirement Wh- to prove after a right.
0: or burglary. If you steal something that's garbage, that has no commercial value. Now, obviously, these animals had intrinsic moral value. Of course. But the yeah. standard in Utah law, which we're not going to be able to argue, unfortunately, because the judge, at least so far, has denied our ability to show the conditions inside, inside the facility that reflect on the value of the pigs. Because if the right. conditions are awful, the pigs have no
2: value. Yeah, These weren't, these weren't nicely raised pigs. These were pigs raised in an environment of torture and disease. Yeah. And, 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 and the response brief by Marianne Decker from the Attorney General, the response to our petition was just so dishonest on, on all these points. Because one of the things is that she mentions it, that to kind of, you know, ameliorate the court's concern that we don't have the ability to talk about the value of the piglets, is that she says, oh, well, you, you know, the trial court order still allows like still photographs from the, the video to be used to talk about value. But that, that same order says that we can't talk about the conditions of the pigs. So how do we talk about the value of the piglets if we can't say that the conditions were such that they had no market value? So it, but whereas the, the state, the prosecutor, actually can talk about uh, value. So that, uh, and, and so in the event that there's a jury instruction about value, they can they can try to establish value, and we have no way to rebut it. So actually, the whole thing about that you know you can show still photos to, of of the video to show value only helps the prosecutor, and it, just in general, like the way that they've tried to uh, and succeeded in excluding the video is to talk about how prejudicial it is. And Janice's uh, briefs, and and then Marion Decker does this in hers too. They they. For the reason that there's prejudice, they cite like statements like "we're going into the heart of evil," and you know we can prejudice meaning just pre- it's going to cause some emotional reaction right the jurors that
0: inflames
2: their feelings and prevents right. them from making
0: a decision based right. on Right, but the thing just is that's a legal term. But they've
2: only actually yeah. cited those particular statements as the basis for this like so-called prejudice. But those statements make up probably like 10 seconds combined Mm. of the video, 15 seconds combined Mm. of the video. Video itself is like eight to 10 minutes, right? Mm. And they've never once, as a way of curing the prejudice, said, okay, let's just show a video that's got those prejudicial statements muted or like yeah. let's do an edited video that doesn't have those places. Their requested relief has always been exclude the entire uh, yeah. video. Yeah. So they're, they've been just straight up dishonest about the reason that they don't want that video to be shown. Yeah. The reason they don't want the video to be shown is because it shows the, the conditions. It shows the dead and dying piglets. It shows yeah. dumpsters whose sole purpose exists to take away piglets and and mother pigs who have died before ever getting out of the facility. And that is the exact reason that the video is probative Mm -hmm. to the value of the piglets. Yeah. Yeah. To to the reason that it's, it's relevant. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's, it's unethical. It's dishonest. It's unconstitutional. It, um, it's just really hard to, it's hard to stomach.
0: Here, here's a silver lining, and then I'll, I think we can close, and I'll just ask you all if you have any final thoughts. Silver lining, I think, is this. They lied to the media with the ag-gag laws and tried to cover up what was happening in slaughterhouses and factory farms. And ultimately, their lie was revealed. They lied to consumers of gestation crates and said, we phased out gestation crates, these mother pigs are around free and proud and happy. Mm-hmm. That lie was exposed and revealed. Now they're lying are trying to lie to the jury and the public in the context of this trial. They're trying to gag us and prevent us and prevent the jury from seeing the truth. And regardless of what happens in the courtroom, as long as we get this message out there and the truth is shown to the people, and the, including the people of Milford, Utah, the people of Beaver County, Utah, Then I think in the long term, their lie will be revealed. And and honestly, part of the answer to that question is just how many people share stuff like this? Yeah. Which is why it's so important. I always say, and this is true, that without all of the people behind the scenes supporting us, you know, doing communications, sharing stuff on Facebook, posting stuff on Twitter and Instagram, we'd be nowhere. The journalists writing about these things, like Glenn Greenwald and Ezra Klein and Andy Greenberg and Marina Balotino. Balotnikova? Balotnikova. I mean, without all these folks amplifying the signal, this lie won't be exposed. So, and, and I think they lost with AgGa, Ag, they lost with gestation crates. They're going to lose in this trial too, no matter what happens in the courtroom. Yeah. As long as we get that story out. Yeah. So that's what we got to do. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts, my friends? i
1: just send love out to everybody. You know, I I think um, we all start off no different than any of these little piglets. We're just perfect little animals, you know, popped out into the world somehow and, and then um yeah despite whatever genetic dispositions we might or might not have the world shapes us the systems shape us so i got love for everybody um everybody in utah every, our prosecutors our judges our jury our um the court staff everybody out there you know i i got love for everybody um this is an unfortunate thing in general that this exists that people have to risk their freedom to expose things like this um and if we end up going to prison you know so be it and i'll I got love for everybody in there too. Um, This is these systems put just like pigs. They put humans in cages. They treat humans like property. People become state property. They don't get to decide if they get to have fresh air or not, or when they get to eat or anything. And, and it's just disgusting. We all, we all need to kind of remember that like, you know, this is a planet we share it with so many others. Um, You know, we're humans and we're animals and, you know, we should, in my opinion, just be working on different ways. We can try to help everybody be their best self have, have their needs met, be safe, exist. There's going to be conflicts. Deal with them the best we can. But this is repugnant right now. Like what yeah. we see is just, I think most people would agree. Um, if, you're, if you're not a CEO, if you're not profiting from this, if it's not some individual stake. And I feel like, you know, folks who, who talk about this uh, see that factory farming is not okay. And, and what's happening to people who expose it is not okay. So thank you everybody for so much support. And um, yeah, just going to spread that love.
0: Awesome. Let's do it. Johnny, any final thoughts?
2: Yeah, really well said, Paul. I love that you're bringing it back to to love. And I, I, I feel very much the same. Like I said, I believe that there's a better world out there. I believe that there's a world where we can shake hands with Janice and with Sean Reyes and with Patty Goff. And we can all appreciate each other's humanity. And we can all wish each other well. And we can all be grateful that we have... That we have work, and that we have, you know, hopefully loving families and and communities. And I I, I always I've, I've said a lot of negative things about those people, and I could say so many more. But I do try to to look at the at the good of what people are doing and the reasons that people that they're doing what they're doing. And I remember, you know, Paul, you were talking about all the the folks in West Virginia and all the coal miners were dependent on that industry. And part of me is grateful that you know. That, that behind what's actually happening is a desire, maybe is a desire to just preserve the economy of Beaver and make sure that people have a livelihood. That is a totally legitimate uh, motive. That's a totally legitimate reason to want to go to work to ensure that other people have a livelihood. And I'm, maybe that's part of, of the rationale of the AG and, and of higher ups in Smithfield, I don't know. Um, but if it is, you know, I think that that that's legitimate. It doesn't justify what's sure. going on because we can do, we can have great livelihoods for everybody without exploiting other human beings and without exploiting the natural world and without exploiting non-human animals, who I think have at the very worst. And so what they're doing is not justified, but I still see that there is, could be a positive intention behind what they're doing too. Yeah.
0: It's good. It's good to always assume good faith and try to yeah. find the best in everyone. Even people who are trying to hurt you. I think that's yeah. one of the most powerful things about nonviolence or HIMSA. Thank you, my friends. It was great. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks, John. Cool. Thanks, sharing. Sure. Thanks, thanks for everybody listening. Yeah, for sure. That was a great conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a lot of fun hanging out with two very good friends. I'm actually on the podcast still, John. I'm <laughs> <laughs> still recording. That's okay. We'll include it. It was funny. Um, but I, I just want to say to all of you, uh, if, if you're listening to this, there's some local activists who are doing some protest about the recent decisions in the Court of Appeals in Utah and the trial court, gagging us from speaking about the conditions, the things we saw on that farm, protesting the effort to gag us from speaking about our motive. I hope you can support them. Or if you happen to be in Utah, join them. Um, one of our local organizers, Aaron, has been doing some great work. I'll put in the show notes a link to his page or some of the stuff he's been doing. I actually don't know the specific details of what they're doing, but I know they're doing great work. So thank you to Aaron and everyone in Salt Lake City and in Utah who supported us. I also want to thank the entire team, as always, for, for helping out with this podcast. Shalolo Fakis, I think, is going to be editing this. Uh, Priya Sahani, Crystal Heat, Julie Waldreb. Um, Dean Wersikowski was sitting next to us recording this podcast and making sure the levels are good. It's all awesome. But I also want to just comment real briefly because I said I'm going to start doing this in the outro about some of the feedback you've given me. And I know um, not the last podcast, but the podcast before with Katie Cleary got a lot of negative feedback. A lot of people were upset that I was saying good things about religion. And, and for the record, because I know a lot of you wrote in and said, how do you believe this sort of nonsense? When I wrote about religion and when I listened and, and supported what Katie was saying about religion, I wasn't necessarily saying I believe in any particular belief system. You know, I think people should believe whatever they want to believe as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. What I meant was there's something very powerful about having a shared belief system that is grounded in good values, and that's all. It doesn't have to be metaphysical. doesn't have to be spiritual. Maybe it's not even accurate to describe as religious. And if you did feel upset about that blog and that email, I just encourage you to read the entire blog post, because I've been an atheist myself for most of my life. I still identify as an atheist, in fact, even though I was saying positive things about religion. What I think has to happen is you've got to create a world where people feel more connected to values and purpose. Feel more connected to each other. And religion through most of history has been the primary vehicle through which that has happened. Doesn't mean it has to continue to be that way. In fact, we can invent and discover new ways of connecting with each other and find shared purpose and shared narratives. But I do think it's important for us to see the good in some of these traditions like the tradition of Buddhism that I don't really consider religion. I mean, I guess it is a religion, but it's more a philosophy and a way of life for me because I'm an atheist, but also Buddhist. I think there's a lot of value in looking at some of these traditions that have created so much purpose and connection in human history and at minimum seeing what we can build off of that today because if we don't, I think it's all going to fall apart. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think human beings have enormous ingenuity. We can overcome these challenges. We can find ways to trust, connect with, and cooperate with each other and overcome some of these huge problems like government oppression, like climate change, like the abuse of animals, the extermination of so many species across this planet. If you believe that too, then, then I'd like you to be a part of this podcast and everything we're trying to do um, as not just animal rights advocates, but advocates for a better world. So anyways, just want to end with that. Thank you all very much. Didn't get too many questions or comments, so sorry I didn't include them. I also only gave you one day's notice because I think I sent the email yesterday saying, if anyone has any questions for Paul and John, send them my way. Um, and many apologies if some of you had questions and comments for them and I missed them. Um, cause I, I know I didn't give you a lot of time and I haven't looked at my email that carefully over the last day. So apologies if you had a question or comment, just put it in the show, um, put in the response or the questions and comments of the blog posts that I send out in conjunction with this podcast and I'll answer it there. Okay. Thank you all very much. Appreciate all of you. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.